Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. Gusty Renegade, host, context of white supremacy, and for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, July 30, 2020. So I have been told. This is our third installment, Romaine Gary's White Dog. Uh, for folks who missed out, uh, we had a broadcast uh, just two days ago, Tuesday of this week, uh, Dr. Tyler D. Perry, white man, was on the program. We discussed his article, uh, Slave Hounds of the Americas. Lots of great information. He's supposed to be working on a book on white supremacy and the book and film, White Dog. Lots of inter- interesting discussion on that broadcast. Uh, Thomas in New York asked Dr. Perry, do you think Romaine Gary is a racist? He said yes, based on the text. Yes. How could you come to any other honest conclusion? Uh, before we hop into the text, uh, so this is our third installment. We're picking up on chapter seven. Uh, I wanted to make sure that we included Dr. Frances Cress Welsing. Her commentary, this is from the ISIS papers, the paper specific, specifically alienation, anxiety, and narcissism. This is on page 27. She writes, Western civilization's religious and secular philosophy pinpoints the activity of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden as the point of the fall of man. The fall is the symbolic expression for the genetic mutation to albinism and the negative projections regarding the white-skinned self in a global population where the norm was black or brown skin color. Likewise, Today, the modern science of genetics views most spontaneous mutations as negative and deleterious in terms of the welfare of the organism in the environment, at least in the human population. Additional symbolism in Western civilization and culture lends further support to this thesis. For example, the dog rather than God proverbially is considered Western man's best friend. This is contrary to the beliefs of skin pigmented peoples regarding their relationship to God. This Western concept of the dog as man's best friend is linked to the mythology of the founding of Rome. According to this mythology, Rome was founded by two orphans, Romulus and Remus, 
who were suckled by a wolf. Both the wolf and the dog are canines. These two presumably white infants are said to have founded the state that began Western civilization and culture. When this is decoded, Romulus and Remus are the symbolic representatives of the early albinos who were abandoned by their black mothers in Africa as genetic mutant defectives and in the process of their northward migration for survival were left to the dogs suckled by wolves. This decoding explains the worship and love of the dog canine in Western civilization. Western man's affection for the dog is reflected in the fact that in 1978 in New York City, dogs were permitted to put 250,000 pounds of fecal matter on the streets each day, defiling the environment for human beings. And is this love and worship of the dog reflected in the mirror image of the words God and dog even at this advanced stage in the expression and evolution of Western civilization and culture? Further, as relationships among people become more alienated, Western peoples and those non-white peoples who have been influenced most heavily by Western culture are gaining more satisfaction from feeding, clothing, loving, and kissing canines than in feeding, clothing, loving, and kissing human beings. Western civilization's original symbolized relationship to the canine following the African mother's rejection of the albino mutant offsprings undoubtedly has influenced the frequent use of the cursing expressions bitch and son of a bitch. These degrading expressions are used pejoratively because deep within the unconscious western white albino psyche their rejected mutant status is viewed pejoratively in a world where the human norm is to have hue. Dr. Francis Cress Welsing The ISIS Papers Keys to the Colors Keys to the Colors We will get started Romaine Gary White Dog Audio Segment 1 The Cows Chapter 7 Jean is to continue her work on Pendulum on location in Washington, D.C., and we leave Marshalltown three days after the funeral. But her dead brother's presence will keep us company for a long, long time to come, and the now eternally young David Seberg will show himself time and again in those sudden, unexpected tears that appear out of nowhere in my wife's eyes, unleashing in me a savage helpless, almost growling hostility and belligerence, aiming its futile threat at fate, almost as if fate had a throat in which I could plant my fangs. But it all ends in clenched and empty fists, our way of coming to grips with destiny, or rather, of coming to terms with it. The sword of justice, the childish knight of righteousness in me, is condemned once more to a state of inner raging 
ending in self-hatred at my frustration and impotence, a mini ocean churned back into mere literature at each attempt to transcend and to overcome, reduced again to murmuring the words of man's first defeat, that never missing link between ape and Einstein. Well, there's nothing we can do about it. I take Jean's hand, a sublime consolation, and ask her about our menagerie. I learn that our son Diego, only six, but already, like his father, given to introspection, and also having taken literally Socrates' advice, know yourself, swallowed a tape measure in a scientific effort to fathom his inner depths. The cats were fine. And Botka? A shadow falls over Jean's face. She has kept a spontaneity of expression, an abandon and directness in the outward manifestations of her feelings and thoughts that is something like a last trace of childhood on those lovely features, the sweet refusal of a worldly mask. I don't want to talk about it. Keys has killed him? No. She withdraws her hand and looks out of the plain at the Mississippi River, twisting below us. Come on, Jean. He began by starving him. Well, not deliberately, but then, you know, the dog refuses to touch food when it's brought to him by by black hands. There was a terrible row with Carruthers simply because Jack went and fed the dog once himself. He'll take his food out of my hand or he won't get any. That was Key's stand. Carruthers called Mia. He was hollering on the phone and I could hear his fists pounding the desk. Yes, Noah. Jack Carruthers, the man they say's been through hell and high water and never loses his cool. You bet. He was bellowing like an old moose and taking it out on the table. Bang, bang, bang. You could feel that his fists just longed to get at our faces. You know what I mean? Take this goddamn dog off my hands or I'll do away with him myself. This whole business has got nothing to do with a dog anymore, and my place is for animals. Do you hear me? Gene, for a real flesh and blood animals, not for your own stinking problems, white, black, or green. Screw them all. Take your problems off my hands. Why don't you give the dog to some nice Berkeley students? That's where he belongs. Get rid of it, I'm telling you. Some it. I can hardly see them deporting 20 million blacks to Africa. What did you say? I said, okay, of course. Grabbed my car and went to the kennel. Except, you see, Keys wouldn't let me take the dog. He refused to part with him. I don't believe it. He won't give up the dog. I found him in Jack's office and I thought they'd both gone nuts. They are, well, they're not the kind of people 
Normally, I mean, you wouldn't think they're the sort of men who could lose their heads over something that was no longer a dog at all. I don't mean to sound patronizing, but, well, you hardly expect them to lose their heads over something that, after all, had a tail, four legs, and a cold nose. Can you imagine Jack Carruthers, that rock, that block of ice on the verge of hysterics? No? Well, I saw it with my own eyes, and Keyes wasn't much better. Jack was screaming his head off, and that half-paralyzed face of his had a nervous twist running across it, like lightning. Keyes had lost his voice. Every time he opened his mouth, nothing would come out. And when he did manage to speak, it sounded as if he'd glued together broken bits of voice. No one has the right to make this animal starve. Carruthers was yelling. Not at my place. Not here. I don't approve of that sort of training method. And what training methods do you approve of? Keys screamed. He was almost choking with words coming out between gulps. The methods they used on him in the South? I really thought Jack was going to have a heart attack. His patched up face was so taut it looked as if it might crack open. His whole head was like a clenched fist. He was holding his voice back, you know, the way you do when you're making a tremendous effort to control yourself. And when he spoke, it sounded as if his voice was coming from six feet underground. That's right, Keys. Tell me I'm a racist. You'll have a point. Because that's what I am. A racist. Keys just stood there, his mouth gaping in astonishment. He was really thrown this time. Yes, I am a racist. Only not the way you all are, black or white. I'm a racist because I've had so much of your fucking human race that it's coming out my ass, whether you're yellow, green, blue, or chocolate. I chose animals 30 years ago. Real animals, not the fake ones who pretend to be something else and better. They had both calmed down a little. You can't put that dog back into circulation said Keys. You have to straighten him up first. That dog is too far gone for what you call straightening up and you know it. Jack growled. You can't make him any different. They've done too good a job on him. You can't change it now. Well, let me try. Keys kept insisting. Not by keeping him short of food and water. That's sadism. You're taking it out on the dog. You're making him pay for what his masters are. Keys went gray with rage. I don't go looking for a dog when I want to get even with his masters. I go looking for them with my gun.
I tried to interrupt, but you can imagine. Jean went on. Jack was shaking his finger at me. I want her to take the animal away. The dog's going to starve to death and it'll get around. They'll say Jack Carruthers trains animals by torture. I'll have the SPCA on my back. Their lousy inspectors have been asking questions already. I had to lie. I said the dog was sick and was refusing food. A thing like that can ruin my reputation. This professional argument of it's bad for business was something Keyes apparently understood because he nodded agreement. Sure, I know. Look, Jack, all I'm asking is that you let me try for another two weeks or so. The dog won't die. He's pretty solid. And then Keyes said something that truly shook me. It was so totally unexpected. What with all that hate around, he said, he's a fine dog. It was spoken with such sincerity, so almost lovingly, that Jack could find nothing to say. He simply looked for a while as if he was going to burst another blood vessel out of sheer despair. Okay. He finally managed to growl, and that was it. Keys went out, and Jack turned toward me. Can you figure out that son of a bitch? That dog really means something to him. Why? Why should he care of all people? Why should he want to change things? Keys is a black Muslim. They say that they get a paid trip to Mecca every time they bring in five pairs of pink ears. It's pure, straight hate with them, right? So what does he want to prove with that dog? That hate can be cured because it's only the result of training and can be treated? Fine. Great. But then, why doesn't he give himself the treatment too? He's so full of hate you feel like looking for a first aid kit the moment he comes along. Can you make that out, Gene? I told him, I think, that the word hate was misapplied, that the sickness itself was a deep neurosis, which was contagious, and, well, you know, I really didn't know what to say. But Jack wasn't listening anyway. That much driving everybody nuts he said I felt completely on Key's side there's no question that this thing can be cured and Key's is right to try he told me that the very first day you can't give up on a dog Jack is biased the fact that Key's happens to be a black Muslim doesn't make him only a black Muslim there's still plenty of room left I don't think I ever before in my life misjudged a man so badly. I saw in Keys my own little idealistic ferments, a cheap trash hallelujah of universal love and brotherhood, deep sunk deposits of a humanitarian creed, a kind of Red Cross meets Boy Scout in liberal praise of Montaigne, Rousseau, and Leon Bloom. 
Salvation Army, to which mock myself till I burst. I shall belong as long as there is a breath of life left in me. No matter how savagely I keep tearing at myself and at all my unshakable belief in you, how desperately I try to weigh myself down with cynicism in the vain hope of sinking to the muddy bottom where lie in dreamless peace so many of our ships, the tearful tremolos of a comical let's love each other, a real ring on in my blood, the only anthem I have ever been able to learn, an eternal Ava Maria of sensitivity, humanism, liberalism, sentimentalism, the idealistic bleeding of a sacrificial sheep always ready to lay their heads once more on that sacrificial stone of dumb, mullish faith in man's essential Rousseauesque goodness. Please, somebody, put him away. You can't change the son of a bitch. He's a true believer. And when I realize that everything I am writing here will see the light in print, the intellectual eunuch and a feet snob in me can almost hear the testicles of real men sounding the charge in the name of hard-boiled virility. Hard types, the hardest you can get. No wonder they keep on talking in terms of eunuchs, a feetness and phallic splendor. They are truly the men who have built this world. We owe that to them and let us never forget that the world we live in has been built by these strong virile men which is enough to make you crave for femininity enough to make you believe that only femininity can save the world chapter 8 we land in Chicago just as two department stores go up in flames on the edge of the black district arson in the airport waiting room, a few black and white passengers are watching the smoke on the TV screen. The young hostess behind the counter has tears in her eyes. How is it all going to end? All our culture is collapsing. I try to see only the positive side of this cry from the heart. A little American girl from the Midwest behind the counter of a shabby airline talks culture to me and is perfectly aware of what is at stake. We look at the burning store on the screen. It is the latest news and I like it. I like it because I love America. I'm happy to see her squirm, to see her hoist and turn and feel the hurt while out there in the communist east all the pus and wounds and sadness are about as visible as life at the morgue. America is feeling its pain as all living things do. Vietnam is the worst thing that could have happened to Vietnam, but perhaps the best thing that could have happened to America. The end of the big sleep of overconfidence, the saving grace of doubt, soul-searching, self-questioning, an impossibility of more of the same, a summons to metamorphosis. No one can say that what the new America will be, but I know that Vietnam and the black challenge will save her from rotting slowly 
imperceptibly on her feet in an immobility of structures, sclerosis, and invisible hollowness. This is not a country that can accept unhappiness as part of being American. It goes against the grain. A black red cap next to the young hostess nods. They've done it again. They. He's old. They're young. I often feel a gap here between old and young that is much stronger than any color line and this is a hopeful sign again. The girl dries her tears. She looks at me with that instant trust people here who feel lost in small towns and backwoods offer spontaneously to those custodians of centuries old wisdom the Europeans. I feel like taking off my Frenchman's crown and rubbing it for a bit of extra shine. Do you think it will blow over? She asks me. I have a deep mistrust of things that blow over because they often blow you to pieces. Look, I tell her, you don't need to worry. It won't blow over. A black minority is trying to help the whites get rid of the past and they're bound to succeed because there's no future for the past no matter how beautiful it is. You either get rid of the past or it gets rid of you, which is another way of getting rid of it. There are two possibilities. Either blacks will succeed and America will change or they will fail and America will change even more, though more painfully, you can't lose. I feel ashamed as soon as I finish speaking. Next time, I ought to try healing the sick by laying on of hands. There are half a dozen blacks and about 15 whites in the waiting room and they all watch the stores burn without a word passing between them. There is one thing the newspapers don't say. In America, you never see what one calls in France, in journalese, une discussion qui dégénère une bâtie rangée. A discussion which degenerates into a pitched battle. At the origin of all the outbreaks of violence, there is either an incident, clumped or a provocation of some kind. Never a discussion. I'd so love to go to Europe, says the girl. Jean writes down our address in Paris and gives it to her. I shudder. Seberg spends her time giving our address to all the young Americans here who believe in Atlantis. That's how one day I found six beatniks sleeping on the floor of our apartment. One of them had been carrying her address around religiously for four years, and he had shared it with friends. There are some simple souls who will never understand symbolic gestures. We reach Washington in the afternoon, welcomed by cherry trees in bloom. My last trip here was in 1960 when I was Council General in Los Angeles. Cuvée de Merville was my first ambassador here and I am probably the only man in the world whom blossoming cherry trees make think of Cuvée de Merville, a brief moment of nostalgia. 
I cannot say I miss him. Cuvée de Merville is not the kind of man you can say you miss, but I liked his well-dressed coldness and that icy appearance, which probably hid secret torments and an overly controlled inner tumult, which showed only in quickly passing ripples of irritation. That evening, in the taxi taking us to dinner, we hear on the radio the news of the assassination of Martin Luther King. The driver is a black. Jean turns so pale that the driver seems even blacker by contrast. He speeds ahead and then asks me to repeat the address of the restaurant. I repeat the address for him. He goes on driving straight ahead, then again in a muffled tone. What was the address again? I wait until he gets some kind of grip on himself. We go round and round the cherry trees. They are bathed in floodlights, an unreal phosphorescence that gives them the look of a frozen, petrified ballet. What was the address again? I hear Jean's scared voice. Is it a white man who killed him? No answer. Jean looks at me almost imploringly. Yes, I know. The sickening, ghastly thought that Martin Luther King may have been killed by a black, as was Malcolm X, when his triumphant, growing, inspiring personality began to be viewed as a threat by the hoods around Elijah Muhammad, that latter-day version of Father Devon plus guns, is not the product of a white man's fancy or sick wishful thinking to deny that this thought this horror had crossed many a black militant's mind is to belittle the scope of the american tragedy is it a white jean repeats almost hopefully so the driver doesn't answer with those frolicking cherry trees, we are the first white thing around since he has heard the news. His hunched shoulders give an impression of hostility, which is nothing but a projection of my own feeling of guilt and shame. For the next few days, I will thus read hate on every black face, a hate that more often than not isn't there at all. My own self-hatred. The cherry trees around us, delightfully dressed up in their floodlights, now have the absurd air of people who come in evening dress for a party that took place last year. The driver drops us at the Hilton. I resist the cowardly temptation to overtip him just because he is black and Martin Luther King has been murdered. Ça va sauter, Jean says. All hell will break loose. Chapter 9 It does the next morning. By two in the afternoon, almost 700 fires are reported in the Capitol, and several of them are only a few blocks from the White House. As always, the young rioters burn mainly their own houses which means that for every store kept by a white, five black families will be homeless. 
a Jewish antique dealer with a long white Babylonian beard down to his waist appears on the TV screen. His store has just been looted. I don't hold it against them. You have to understand them. The Jews are favorite targets first because some of the stores belong to them and then because the blacks need Jews just like everyone else. The fashionable lie in Stokely Carmichael's circle is that Jews are the principal slumlords in the ghetto, whereas the truth is that 52% of the all-black buildings and 20% of the buildings that are mostly black are owned by blacks. But then the Carmichaels of this world can only subsist financially and psychologically by lapping up all the hate nourishing pus of history. Another nondescript white who could be Greek, Italian, Armenian, or all three is filmed against the background of his wrecked apparel store. A pair of long johns in the smashed window is all that is left of his merchandise. The long john shows its behind to us. Why didn't the police shoot? It's a shame. The police stayed in their cars while those hoods looted my shop under their very noses. He would have preferred to see kids killed for a few pairs of long johns. They were probably of a superior quality. The mayor of Washington, whose name is Washington and who is black, has given orders to the police not to shoot except where human lives are in danger. I learn that my friend Selv Dressler got himself knifed in a telephone booth while taking pictures. Some idea that holding up in a telephone booth where you're cornered like a rat. The TV shows scenes of looting filmed by black reporters. In a few hours, a kind of congolization of the city begins to be felt. The Sheraton Hilton is like a luxury ship abandoned by its crew and set adrift. The personnel is black, but their absence is not a strike of protest. None of them dare go through his own black neighborhood to come to work. Isn't it comical that I should experience a kind of relief, a satisfaction, when blacks and whites share something, if only fear? With the extreme fragility of big American cities, of all modern cities, restaurants close from lack of food, garbage piles up higher and higher, even as you watch these mountains of garbage, always the first sign of civilization breaking down. The smoke from the fires drifts over districts that are perfectly safe from danger, but the rumor spreads round that they're coming out. Traffic is a monstrous stream of metal Everyone with a car is trying to get out of the city. Whites make up a bare 40% of the population of the city, which is entirely surrounded by the so-called Black Belt, 
not unlike the communist Red Belt of Paris. The crime rate is the highest in the USA. A distinguished 55-year-old lady, a famous hostess of society functions, was raped by blacks while walking her three dash hounds in broad daylight right in the middle of the city in a public square and then patiently queued up at the police station to report the affair. A pride of matriarchy, that rock-like lady, she later confided to our ambassador that she had been very afraid for her dogs. The hoodlums kept threatening to kill them. In the hotel lobby, the Cherry Festival tourists prowled nervously around their luggage, waiting for the buses to take them to the airport. Air services have been tripled and quadrupled. Their faces are worried and their reactions out of all proportion with the perfectly non-existent danger. The least one can say is that perhaps America has found her new redskins, but certainly not her new pioneers. Fortunately, as I am taking a walk around the abandoned cherry trees, I come upon a couple of true Americans after my heart, the kind I dote on. Their added ages must be something like 150 years. The old lady is taking pictures of a particularly gorgeous cherry tree, and I swear the tree is posing. Her husband looks like a very old tree himself, a dry, graying one with wrinkled bark that will never know bloom or spring again. His impish blue eyes give me a conspiratorial wink. With all this mess around, we have it all to ourselves. I tell them, I love you, and leave those staunch Americans to their cherry blossoms. In the evening, the situation deteriorates, whatever that may mean, and 12,000 federal soldiers are brought to the Capitol. Curfew is declared. A few minutes before the time limit, as I walk by the White House, I have the privilege of witnessing a historical sight. No one who saw it is likely to forget it. A machine gun on the steps of the United States President's residence pointed toward the street. It was to disappear an hour later on Johnson's personal order, but I did see it and it was beautiful. Nothing gives a better impression of powerlessness than a lone machine gun at the entrance to the vital center of the biggest and most powerful democracy the world has ever known. America has at last become a country where something new can happen. There isn't a single car in the street now. On the sidewalk, I notice a particularly depressing phenomenon. A few blacks and whites hurrying home avoid each other's eyes and all of them look sad. They don't seem to be aware of the privilege they have. That of living a historic moment. A moment when you could hear, albeit barely, the whimper of a new world being born. If I were Russian or Chinese, I would wish with all my heart that America 
would pull successfully through its forthcoming mutation. I would remind all those Russian or Chinese, yellow, white or black, who talk of burying America that this country is an immense continent and to bury that kind of corpse you need a lot of room the whole earth as a matter of fact all those who are digging America's grave are making their own funeral arrangements back in the hotel as I walk along empty corridors my eye catches through an open door a scene almost perfect in its ugliness A fat woman is sitting on the bed in her panties and bra with tears running down her face. She is hollering at someone I can't see, but whose invisible presence seems to be that of the perfect American husband of the Rotary Plus Daily type. I want to go home. I want to get out of here. Sure, honey, sure. We'll be all right. We're getting out tomorrow. We'll be all right. The idea of any danger whatsoever is asinine, yet the rumor in the lobby is that they are going to come down and set fire to the Hilton. Hear, hear. They'll come on us from all sides, close off all the exits, and smoke us out like rats. It's an interesting idea because it's typically a rat's idea. This panic comes from within, from deep within, and it bears no relation to the existence of any exterior threat. What is showing itself there is guilt, mother of all anxiety and terror, and also, perhaps more than anything else, it is the phenomenon of the familiar suddenly becoming completely alien and new to you. America has lived safe in the smiling knowledge of her Negroes, and suddenly she no longer recognizes them, and the natural consequence is fear. Do you know the story of the sailor Dybinko? He was the faithful guard of the young Zarevich, the hemophiliac child who was to inherit the throne of Russia. The sailor had watched over the royal child for years with a touching devotion. He had the complete trust of the Tsarina. When the revolution brought the world down on their heads, a member of the royal suite unexpectedly entered Tsarevich's room in the castle where the imperial family had been first interned. He saw the sailor lolling back in an armchair having his boots taken off by the terrified kneeling royal child whom he was cursing profanely which just goes to show that you can never really count on your servants chapter 10 ever since the riots had begun I had been trying to reach by phone a man whom I shall refer to here by the name of his last-born and eleventh child, Red. I first met him in Paris a couple of years after the liberation when he was supported financially 
by Pigal, whores, and studying at the Sorbonne at the same time. The girls of Pigal hadn't waited for black power to discover that black is beautiful. The physical glow of this child of California was a value that the society which rejected him so totally prohibited him from not exploiting. It ordered him to get all he could from his striking good looks the way black boxers and athletes of my generation fell back on their muscular gifts to try to make it in the only way left open to them. You have to be a stinking hypocrite, a forger of fake moral values to accuse Malcolm X of having been a pimp or my friend Red of having been a Makeru in Paris in the early 50s. If you look at the present state of opportunities open to Africans in Paris, for example, those who accuse so many of them of procuring are actually damning the countless whites in colonial Africa who spent a good century saying to their boy, bring me a girl tonight. The marginal sexual aspects of colonialism gave birth among other consequences, to the infamous institution of sucking boys, a willful murder of the child's soul. The whole business was the result of an absolute rejection of the black race outside the human family to the point that the wretched men who indulged in these facilities often didn't even have the excuse of homosexuality. In America, you have only to read the autobiographies of Claude Brown, Cleaver, and so many others to realize that the psychological, moral, and economic conditions in which the young ghetto black lives, struggles, develops, or dies take away any trace of significance or moral meaning from the fact that such and such a black who is today a lawyer, a political leader, or a writer was, when starting out, a man who lived on prostitutes' earnings, a criminal, a drug pusher, or an addict. Rare are the blacks who haven't had a whore among their maternal ancestors, and the real whore there was the white society. Blacks whose female ascendants haven't been used to give their first kicks to white male virgins are few. There isn't a Negro today who would feel any hesitation in admitting that his mother or grandmother was a whore. The shame is not on him. To be a pimp in those circumstances is meaningless in terms of bling. The Negro has been forced into prostitution, sport, or crime just as the Jews had to fall back on usury. They were given the corner on that particular market. I had helped Red in Paris when he had a bout with tuberculosis. I had taken a liking to that American ten years younger than I. I recognized in him the oceanic tumult of my own adolescence as a Heimatloss penniless refugee. We had been through similar trials. I too had had to survive one way or another. He had learned French very fast and spoke a perfect argo with a rather funny American accent. I remember your prophetic phrase read in 1951 when you were stuffed with penicillin as a result 
of the kind of risk you run in that profession. You were thundering at the Picasso exhibition. Sooner or later, young people will begin to treat society the way Picasso treats reality. They'll smash it to pieces. His two eldest sons are twins, and one of them lives, or rather hides, in my place in a maid's room, Rue de Bac. He was one of the very few people I have ever dared to consider as a true friend. Call it misanthropy, or over-exigence, and leave it at that. I get through to Red at four o'clock via a call to Los Angeles to get his phone number. The curfew has been announced for 4.30 by the mayor. I recognize the warmth in that voice, despite all the years that have gone by. You can't come here alone, Romaine. You look white. I have to see you, and that's all. Right now? Yes, right now. I don't have anything special to say to you, so you can see it's really important. All right, I'll send some brothers to get you. The American accent is stronger, but Pijal is still there, and his French is effortless. I expected to see two fear-inspiring heavies, but the bodyguards turned out to be two frail teenagers in a beat-up Chevy. Fifteen? Sixteen? But they were apparently exactly what it took because as we drove along, the young cats who came up to the car with bottles of gasoline walked away again as soon as they heard the magic words which today echo from one end of America to the other. Soul Brothers Fascinating, this intrusion of the word soul into the language of American blacks, if you recall that the word soul until 1860, the date of their liberation, meant serfs in Russia. The soul was a unit to be bought and sold. The price of a soul at the time of Gogol's dead souls was depending on the condition of the merchandise in the neighborhood of the 250 rubles, about the equivalent of $55. Soul brother. Soul brother. The kids fall back. A house is burning, but no one is taking notice. Yet only 50 yards further on, a crowd is watching houses burn on a television screen in a store window. The real thing is there, a stone's throw away, but they prefer to watch it on the little screen. It has been specially chosen for them to see, so it's got to be a better show than that house burning near them. Media culture at its apogee. In Red's apartment, there are about ten people. Half of the women wear African dress and natural hair. In all my previous years in this country, I had never seen a black American woman without a wig. I had loved black women without knowing that those beautiful, soft tresses were imported from Asia via Hong Kong. I love women enough to find this modish, bushy wilderness on their heads a plus. There seems to be more of the woman 
with that growth and there is never enough of her as far as I am concerned. They accept me with a trace of irony. There is pride in the air, that slightly condescending and sardonic welcome a civilian is given in a front-line HQ. Red comes in ten minutes after me. He is now a man of forty-six, but only his face shows the marks of twenty years of political struggle. The strength and power of a body that always brought to my mind centuries of carrying loads and of manpower in the literal sense of the word haven't changed since the days of our youth. One of those men whose width, broad shoulders, and massive chest make them appear smaller than they are. The features have lost some of their finesse, but not due to fat. They have merely taken on a different kind of hardness, which is no longer the chance result of bone structure and muscle, but comes now from the expression and the will and spirit behind it. He is worried. His wife is about to give birth. He's afraid the clinic may be set on fire. You can see what a clever piece of work that would be. Have the clinic sent up in smoke by the heat, and then they'll say it's the rioters themselves who burned it. His French isn't a bit rusty. Come on, they won't do that. What the hell? No, they probably won't. But it's an idea. None? For an idea, it's an idea. I settle down on a threadbare armchair, but I'm capable of having ideas too. What if you set fire to the clinic yourselves so that you could say afterward that it was police provocation? To do that, we'd have to pick a white clinic. He holds out his pack of cigarettes to me. We both laugh. When's the baby due? Any time. This is my second wife and my twelfth kid. I intend to keep at it. He gives me a light. You know, for blacks, the first thing is to screw like mad. That's what it boils down to. Numbers. That means no pill and no diaphragm, no contraception and no abortion. The more we screw, the more we screw them. We've studied the statistics. By screwing all we can, we can hit the 50 million mark within 10 years, almost a quarter of the population. If we forbid even whores to use the pill or diaphragm within 10 years, I say, c'est du désespoir. It's sheer despair. He looks at me with surprise. A nigger who isn't desperate is a nigger who's finished. It is true that in English, desperate is nearer to anger than to despair, which is wonderfully reassuring. You can go all round the problem you won't find any other solution, genocide or love. Red, 
you know damn well that rich societies never go for genocide. It would be an offense to luxury. The only solution to the black problem is between the legs of our women. Why not between the legs of white and black women? There's no one here in this room who doesn't have white blood in him. There's no antibiotic to cure that. But right now, interbreeding is bullshit. Sex has never been less capable of breaking through the barriers. It's true. It's an odd paradox, but the more liberal you are, black or white, man or woman, the more committed you are to the civil rights struggle, then the more you avoid interracial sexual relations so as not to give any substance to the racist arguments. I mean the kind of argument that explains white women's participation in the black struggle by sexual compulsion. Anyhow, with the pill and the diaphragm, all that business of miscegenation is absolutely devoid of a genetic future. I have often noted a particularly pathetic and painful phenomenon. When you talk with blacks about the white blood in them, they will rarely tell you, I had a white grandfather, but almost always, I had a white grandmother or a white great-grandmother. Why? How sad you can be, truth, and how stupid you often are, psychology. Not one of the young blacks wants to admit that his mother was screwed by a white, but they seem to derive a satisfaction from the fact that a white woman got laid by their black grandfather, a frightening posthumous revenge directed against your own blood. Red put his hand on my shoulder. Hey, do you realize we've been arguing for three quarters of an hour and we haven't even talked to each other? He shrugs. Goddamn awful. You can say that again. It's come to the point when any black and any white who meet here, even if they're the best of friends, always end up talking color. Ralph Ellison, in his powerful book, described the black American as the invisible man. But what about now that he has become visible? This sudden new visibility, which as it increases, tends to make him more and more visible as a black and less and less visible as an individual. A strange return to the beginning. The black American was reduced to the color of his skin because he had no existence. And here he is again reduced to his skin once more because he's beginning to exist more and more as a black. I tell Red that me is sick. I phone her every day in Beverly Hills since my arrival in Washington. I think she's going to die. She meows so sadly on the phone. He laughs. Ever heard of a cat that meows cheerfully? I feel relieved that in the middle of the violence, scarcely hours after Martin Luther King's death, Red hasn't told me, go ahead, break my heart, talk about your sick Siamese cat. It's the right time. There's an explosion behind my back. One of the men in the room has thrown a bottle into the television set. It hisses, flickers, smokes, and dies in a kind of viperine, dragon-like death. The bastards! 
he is right. Since the assassination on all the channels, there's an uninterrupted flow of eulogies, praise, and noble words for Martin Luther King. Six weeks earlier, Stokely Carmichael himself, then at the peak of his anti-white popularity, had called him a coon. The nonviolence movement was considered finished and its apostle a failure. He only had to die to come to life. The boob tube is particularly sickening. A non-stop procession of black and white faces singing the praises of the man who, with Malcolm X, had been the most significant and influential leader in decades with an unerring gift for touching that Jeffersonian something still so vivid in America's psychological makeup. The crypt-like tone of the announcers, the rose water flowing everywhere, radio, TV, press, the oldest way of making up at the least expense. In all my life, I have never seen anything like the posthumous discovery of a man nobody gave a damn about 48 hours earlier. I much preferred the frank stinking cynicism of the white bitch we heard in the lobby of the hotel after the assassination. It threw Jean into the only physical fight of her life. Well, I call that a good job well done. Red looks out at the kids milling in the street with gasoline cans and bottles in their hands. What are your tactics now? He shakes his head. There are no tactics. Everything is spontaneous. Our people live in a state of constant provocation. That of the wealth of white America pushed in the faces of over 20 million blacks with almost no buying power and stripped of their rights. Do you think we're the ones who got the Watts revolt going with its 32 dead? The real organizers were the white storekeepers who sell their stuff to an underprivileged population in poor neighborhoods at a cost almost 30% higher than in rich districts. There's no public transportation, so a black brother who doesn't have a car can't get to work even if he could find work. What about you? I'm recruiting for Vietnam. I sit there, blinking. This time, although the most profound characteristic of the black situation is its absurdity, I lose all contact with reality. Or with absurdity. Same thing. And what the hell does that mean? I'm recruiting our kids for Vietnam. Not easy. He must have caught the frightened look on my face because he nods in agreement. Yes. There is nothing I find to say. Nothing. I sit there in sheer stupidity. Then I say feebly, What about the Vietnamese? What about them? In all this? Yeah, sure. Well, I'll tell you something. Right now, I don't give a damn. The only brothers I know as long as the struggle lasts are black. Black. I don't give a shit about the others. 
not one of them just now no matter who they are the only thing that counts is that thanks to Vietnam we'll have 75,000 blacks back home all with the best the very best training in guerrilla warfare it sure isn't their intention but the Pentagon helps us I mean the real know-how they give you fighting in the streets and in the jungle infiltration and all that is like building up a professional black army the best I reckon that makes us about 60 to 75,000 potential instructors and each one can set up a combat group here and that's why I consider any black who wants to prevent our kids from going to fight over there a traitor if the Vietnam War finished today it'd be a disaster for us we need at least three or four years of fighting over there to set ourselves up in a big way real big the cows gusty renegade that is the end of the first segment uh we'll pick up we are still in uh chapter 10 still in chapter 10 the discussion with red mm, red and uh our author romaine gary uh the number to dial is 720-716-7300 number again 720-716-7300 the code 564 Four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Code again five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Still having nutty computer issues, so hopefully we'll have the live feed resolved uh, tomorrow. Uh, you can listen in live on via phone, and then everything will be uploaded and such once we are done. Computer issues amidst all of the chaos. What a year. Anywho, uh, if folks have comments, thoughts to share, uh, we will get you on the line. Press star 61. Make sure I get in my uh, reminder. You do not do tangents, so we're just on the book club. Uh, folks have other thoughts on other things related to what has been mentioned in the text, because why we, there was a lot said. Uh, it is amazing to be reading this book at this moment where he's going and describing riots and them having to call out federal authorities, armed officers out to quell unrest in Washington, D.C., no less, and to be reading amazing, absolutely amazing. Anywho, but no tangents if we stay focused on the text. That would be grand. We had a lot of rich information to cover. Woo. Let's see if folks have thoughts to share. Uh, do, do, do. All righty, let's see. First few folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Let's see. Can I be heard? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, let's see. 
Um, greetings to, uh, to Gus and, of course, all the other listeners as well, too. So let's see. I've taken a couple of notes. They might go back into a couple of things that happened uh, last week during the reading as well, too. So let's see. Uh, let's see. The town where well, uh, where well, no, read that last week. Uh, married a black ne- uh, negress and had a couple of mulatto, mulatto sons. That was on page seventy-five. Who became part of the communist party? Um, I think I commented on that last week. How you know? I think this is during the time of you know the communist year in the country, trying to hunt down all the communists in the country and put them in jail, as well too. Uh, let's see, this was at the beginning of the reading. The people were not saying to the Frenchman that he doesn't understand what it's like to have 20 million Negroes in France. That was particularly interesting. Obviously, you know, black people, at least the ones who um, who were brought here against their will in the country, you know, obviously most people, uh, black people who are here, you know, they understand that for the most part, yeah, it's hard to be a black person inside this country, but when you think about other places outside of the west, uh, the Western Hemisphere, like places like France or the UK, or places in Europe, black people who might find themselves there usually go in pursuit of trying to look for a better life. And because of, obviously the people who were born and raised here, you know, former descendants of slaves, um, you know, white people worry constantly that, you know, black people are constantly going to, you know, go crazy and do to them what they um, what has been done to them. And but I do find it ironic that a, a Frenchman would say that, you know, you don't know such a fear. Uh, let's see. I'm aware that a psychiatrist studies almost all points to sexual fear as an important factor in the white-black relationship um, or lack of the same. At least, at least that was on page 66, and I believe it talks about the idea that the relationships of the constant relationships between black and white people are based on some underlying sexual issue. And of course, that gets to Dr. Welsing's uh, theory of a uh, genetic alienation, at least for white people. Uh, let's see, uh, 76, 77, um, describing the black male penis like a skyscraper and a magical wand to be reckoned with. Uh, I think it's more reference to that book. Uh, delectable Negro. The uh, narrator uh, met with a woman who studies literature at USC, who husband drives around for sex. That was pretty funny. Uh, let's see. He's as Jack training methods for dogs versus Southern training methods for slaves. At least that was on page eighty-four. I found this particularly interesting because Jack found it at least particularly appalling how um, he was training the dog or trying to break the dog of his, um, of his racist habits. But, you know, at the same time, thinking it was just this problem. Um, well, at least me, I was thinking about the same kind of methods that were used to um, uh, train or break slaves during slavery in Jim Crow and even now. Um, how white people could be so appalled that someone would mistreat a dog. But, you know, of course, this same, you know, seeing the same mistreatment or even worse mistreatment happen to black people doesn't usually bad an eye. I think back to a situation I think that happened, I forget what city where a black man was being arrested. His friend got arrested, and he was about to get arrested. The police officer started assaulting him, and people were just was there watching. But when the black man started to defend himself against the officer, all of a sudden everyone wanted to intervene. Uh, let's see. There was a line on page 84, you're taking it out on the dog. Uh, at least I, I, I believe that I remember that being a reference to how he treats the dog. And um, – or the way – the um, I think Jack Fields 
Keith's treatment of the dog is like everything Keith feels as a black man he wants to do with a white person, but maybe can't right now, so he does it to the dog. Uh, yeah, that's also referenced on page 85 as well, too. Um, let's see, Jack talks about Keys educating racism out of Boston. That's on page 86. That reminds me of the book White Fragility, the idea that, you know, racism can be educated um, out of a person or, in this case, uh, the dog. Uh, at least there's no evidence that simply teaching white people how not to be racist, you know, would result in uh, less racism. And then the, um, the reference to uh, Stokely Carmichael, which Stokely Carmichael talked about the Jews being the slumlords of the world. Um, I don't even find that particularly interesting today because um, John Lewis, of course, has just passed away. You know, rest in peace to John Lewis. But during the, um, the um, you know, people talking at the, um, the funeral, uh, Bill Clinton um, was speaking, and Bill Clinton notioned how, you know, people had a choice between following people like uh, Mike, uh, Stokely Carmichael um, compared to John Lewis, and me personally, I found that to be a very tacky comparison. Um, you know, as you as you can imagine, you know, however black people choose to uh, fight white supremacy is how they choose. Um, black people may not agree, but you know, the mere comparison I found to be a bit tacky. Uh, let's see, the congolization of the city. Um, with the, I think this is well after uh, Martin Luther King had been uh, assassinated and people are just upset at this point. Black people just have a look of anger on their face. Of course, at least in this particular context, this reminds me of the white uh, flight situation where um, white people started leaving for the suburbs and stuff like that, and black people were left in the cities. And of course, the idea was the cities would, you know, basically fall into this, um, you know, um, fall into um, chaos because, you know, white people weren't there to run it, uh, weren't there to run it. And then this line, a uh, white lady got raped while walking dogs, and she was more concerned with the dog. That line was particularly just outrageous to me. I really have a hard time believing that a white woman walking her dog got just randomly raped. And then the only thing that she was concerned about was the fact whether or not her dog was okay. That was just to me just utterly, utterly ridiculous. But it probably gets you out the idea that she was saying that um, the writer of this book, Romaine Gary, has just been said to be a, a constant, constant liar. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to my wife. Would you like to add anything? <laughs> Hello, everyone. This is Miss C, and I just have just a brief comment um, on this week's reading. Uh, as my husband mentioned, um, there there was an obsession with the phallus, white men's phallus, black men's phallus, um, comparing them to skyscrapers, magical wands, the thing, bananas, or um, like a machine, like a gadget. And the book mentions... Um, that white people and black people, they share one thing in common, and that's fear. But I feel like the fear that white people have, um, it's like anxiety, and it's, I think it's rooted in sexual, like, tension um, for black people. Like, maybe they want to consume black people, or they want to try to destroy them. Um, and the book was talking about, like, a homogenous society that you'll commonly find in Europe where there's a lot more white people or people who would be classified as white, and they have less fear. They experience less fear. And I think that's because when you're, when you're living among 
a lot of white people, you don't have to be confronted with the consequences of racism or the consequences of slavery against the people that you're oppressing. So what what was mentioned was um, after Martin Luther King Jr. got assassinated, there was uprisings or as the book called them, riots. And I think the riots, or I'm sorry, I think the white fear is closely linked with the guilt. And white people do not like to be, um, they don't want to be uncomfortable or cause uh, to experience any discomfort. So when they were in the cab with the cab driver and Martin Luther King was assassinated, the cab driver clearly, he was um, distraught over this and he couldn't even think clearly or see clearly. And they, they had a sense that something was going on in his brain. You know, he was probably thinking like, oh, my God, like this black man was murdered by a white person. And they mentioned, let's hope, let's hope that um, it was... I think they. I think in the book it said um, that let's hope that it was a white person and not a black person like with Malcolm X, who at that time was um, just murdered a couple of months before. And there was there was a scene where there was the the big fat white woman who was crying, and her husband had to reassure her that they would leave. Um, leave the area so she wouldn't have to be uncomfortable in the situation with the rioting and um, the destruction, which is typically blamed on black people. Whenever there's riot, rioting or destruction, they'll always somehow pin it on black people. And I, I also think um, white people are not pained at all when it comes to um, the suffering of non-white people, or in this case, black people, and the only fear that they that they share is revenge. They they don't want to face the consequences for what they've done um, in the past, their ancestors have done, and what they're doing presently um, to oppress groups. And they think, what if these people get upset enough? to do to us what we've been doing to them for such a long time. And with that, I will end my commentary. Much obliged, Ms. C, non-Clemson grad. Excellent uh, observations from the text. Uh, other folks who dialed in that we have missed totally, uh, if you have uh, commentary to share. Line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, well, uh, thank you. Uh, I, I, this is uh, Mo from Dallas. Uh, greetings uh, to the caller. Um, the the reading is awesome. It's so awesome. I had to call in and catch it. Um, I, and I, I took a few notes, but this one particular quote stuck out um, it was in chapter 8 it says um, either blacks will succeed and America will change or blacks will fail and America will change even more I mean I just think that that, that particular line it was it was heavy just because it just shows that the system um, is conditioned to change especially like in the 
in the eyes of a like a revolt, if you will. Like, and if, if the if the victims don't succeed, you know, they like the the, the perpetrators of the system will refine it just that much more to make the next time that much more difficult. So, um, well, with that being said, uh, I mute my line. Thank you. Much obliged, Mo from Dallas. I'm glad to hear that. You know, if people do not think this book is constructive, given everything that's happening on the planet, why are we reading about a racist hound from 50 years ago, no less? You can for sure get that in as well. But glad to hear uh, it. Folks think it's constructive enough that they wanted to stop spectating. Like, that is awesome book selection right there. Other folks that we've missed totally, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, I think I have, I made a couple of notes. Um, uh, people before me got said, um, some of the stuff I had jotted down. But one thing stood out to me was, um, I think, I don't know if it was a limo driver or cab driver, but the driver that was driving him and his wife, when they found, when, um, the driver found out that Martin Luther King Jr. had, um, been assassinated. Um, and he called, yeah, I think he kept on calling a black, <laughs> like, a black man, a black, like, why is this saying a black, like, the dehumanizing of, of black people? Like, I see him do that a lot in the book. And the more I listen to the book, is the more I think the book is more about him than a white dog. I think the white dog is him. Um, I, I missed last week. I, I fell asleep um, <laughs> during the thing. And um, I missed a couple parts of it. And I was very confused who Red was. Because I felt like I heard the, the word Red in... Um, in close proximity to Malcolm X. And I know that Malcolm X was also called Red. So I was like, who was this Red person? He's like, what? I was confused about that. Um, I want to know if, um, if he was a black person. Um, he made some commentary about this red person um, screwing like crazy and having a lot of, have, having a lot of children. I know um, sometimes um, white people say that about black males and black women out like the, the sexual promiscuity, um, what else? And the, the, the comment, I don't know if he was trying to compliment a black woman, I, I wasn't sure. He said something like the bushy wilderness on her head, um, what else? Um, and um, he said something else too that, that caught my attention. I'm not sure if I have the quote, I don't have the quote, I don't have the book. It said something like, oh, when a white woman joined a struggle is for some kind of like sexual satisfaction, and it made me think about that movie Mandalay with that white lady who tried to, quote, unquote, save these black people but end up massacring them. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's all I have for now. Uh, thanks. Grace's character in... Mandalay, one of my favorite films. That's amazing. Mandalay is one of, I think, one of the best films on white supremacy racism, as is White Dog, uh, book and film, best offerings on white supremacy racism, although White Dog the movie, White Dog the book, are very, very different. Uh, other folks that we have missed totally, let's see,
Uh, it's taking me a second to get the switchboard to cooperate, of course. Everything be difficult. Uh, let's see. Okay. Oh, looks like I had it for a second, and then I didn't. Let's see. Okay, here we go. Uh, other folks who we have missed totally, if you have a hand up commentary to share, proceed. I'll be heard. Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to the callers. Um, greetings. Um, with the racist who you had on this week talked about the book, um, I asked him if old man Gary was a racist. He said no. <laughs> but I, I just don't see how he wrote this book. There wasn't one. Um, he referred to... It was a commentary. It appeared to be between. Um, it appeared to be between. Um, uh, someone was admitting to being a racist. Say he hated human racists, though. Um, that's that's why he decided to um, choose animals over humans a long time ago. And I don't care if you're racist, purple, yellow, green. But when he got to black, he said chocolate. Um, you know, and I said, oh, delectable Negro. Um, he said, um, so he was making a lot of references to um, black sexual habits and um, I think a lot of um, stereotypical references. And um, he says um, blacks had the market on being hoes and pimps and drugs, and they gave um, Jews the markets on usury like it was a bad thing. I believe that's called banking. <laughs> you know, I give you some money, you give me some interest back and I get my money back and I make a lot of money. Like I, that's a, that seems like it's an industry. We didn't get that at all. You know, um, uh, other than that though, Gus, um, what, what some of the callers said was true. Um, uh, I've been following along. Um, and, you know, I just, every now and then there's something that said that's just like, Hmm, I do not think a black man will sit there with a white, white man, and I could be wrong. Maybe it's just my codification, but I don't see a black man sitting down with a white man in, in depth describing, um, you know, they want to have sex with black women so they can destroy the white population and do all of that type of talking. It just doesn't seem logical, and I suppose um, that could have been um, Mr. Gary making that up, that whole conversation. I'm doing my line, thank you. Much obliged, Thomas in New York. Uh, Mr. Gary is a liar. That's not my wording. Like I said, there are lots of articles uh, about him lying about lots of things. I mean, big, gigantic lies. So there should be suspicion. Uh, most importantly, uh, Dr. Tyler Perry suspected racism. Well, not suspect cowbell, but more importantly, when you asked him that question, I thought he did say Romaine Gary was racist. I thought he said specifically, he said, if you look at the way that he talks about black people, I thought he said that there's no other conclusion that you could come to uh, based on what he wrote in this book. If there are other folks maybe who were with us for that broadcast, if you recall, but I thought I remember you asking him the question, excellent ask. I thought he answered in the affirmative. Yes, Gary, uh, Romain Gary would be a racist based on what he wrote in the text. Does anybody else remember that? Was that just me? Am I in error? Uh, 
Yes, he did say that. He did say it was racist. Okay. Yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. I'll go back yeah, in. Maybe I Double. misunderstood. I'm, I'm going to go back myself and listen. Okay. I, I thought I'm a, buckets, buckets and buckets of words. It seemed like he was, well, you got to weigh in the time and all of that stuff. I'm doing myself. Okay. I'll go back and listen as well. I might, you know, my memory might be off. But I thought he said, yeah, I thought that was, there were definitely times. I think uh, non-Clemson grad, I almost hit the buckets of words when he was answering your question because you had to repeat and do a whole lot else. But that one, I thought he was pretty cut and dry, right to the point, yes, and specifically about the way that he talked. And, and in fact, when he gave his answer, I said the way that he talks about keys because uh, we hadn't even got to the Stokely Carmichael stuff, but the way that he would talk about uh, keys had so many teeth and he said it repeatedly and lots of them. But, yeah, I'll go back and listen again. Uh, let's see. Did we miss anybody? Anybody that we missed totally who had a uh, hand up? We had folks who wrote in as well. I want to make sure I get our written commentary in also. Okay, so we'll get our written commentary in. Uh, man, so this is uh, our investor who suggested or just shared the article. I'm not, I don't have to even go back to look to say that. Did he say to maybe have Dr. Perry on the program or if he just said, oh, this report is pretty interesting, check it out. Uh, either or, uh, this is the fellow who came up with Dr. Perry's uh, report. Uh, so he writes in, uh, as you pointed out, with previous readings, Books which have been translated from other languages, like Wretched of the Earth, uh, translated from French, uh, and the current text, originally published in French, may lose something in translation. I wonder how that affects this text. Good question. Uh, I was struck by the number of words in the text with quotation marks around them. There are a lot uh, in italics. Uh, I am unclear what the purpose with uh, what the purpose was since most did not suggest they were either direct quotes or were taken from other texts. Other very nice point. Uh, so chapter seven, they've numbered lots of notes this time around for everyone. Uh, number one, author describes Gene telling him that Chicago uh, Diego, excuse me, Diego, his son swallowed a tape measure, I thought the fact that the author glossed over and resorted to sarcasm regarding what could have been a tragic event was odd. Is it a tall tale? Oh, no, another suspicion of Mr. Romaine lying, Gary Ro I mean, uh, Romaine Gary lying. Number two, uh, Carruthers states, I'm a racist, only not the way you all are, black or white. I'm a racist so much of your fucking human race that it's coming out my ass, whether you're yellow, green, blue, or chocolate. This statement reminded me of the one, I don't see color, which is often said by suspected racists. Number three, why should he care, talking about key, then why doesn't he give himself the treatment, too. He's so full of hate, you feel like looking for the first aid kit the moment he comes along. Carruthers is transferring 
his own hate for non-white victims onto Keyes. Keyes is full of hate. For me, and that was a question, Keyes is full of hate with a question mark. Uh, for me, he demonstrates an inordinate amount of compassion for a racist killer dog. Keyes, uh, Keyes' relation to the dog may be a metaphor for how victims respond to racists. Now, that is it. Keep that in mind as we continue reading the book. Uh, keep that in mind as we continue reading the book. Uh, for the movie, hmm, hmm. But keep that in mind as we continue reading. Okay. Number four, uh, the author states, the intellectual eunuch and a feet snob in me can almost hear the testicles of real men sounding, or, uh, sounding the charge in the name of hard-boiled virility. Hard types, the hardest you can get. No wonder they keep on talking in terms of eunuchs, of feetness, and phallic splendor. This passage suggests homoeroticism of keys by the author, in particular, all the references to testicles, hardest, and phallic splendor. Chapter 8, number 1, Vietnam is the worst thing that could happen, that could have happened to Vietnam, but perhaps the best thing that could have happened to America. The end of the big sleep of overconfidence, the saving grace of doubt, soul-searching soul, the author neglects to mention the role of France in colonizing Vietnam for its natural resources. Excellent point. The reason we got to Vietnam, white people globally help each other. U.S. had to help France out after they were losing. Uh, Vietnam, uh, resources. Beginning in the 1800s, which was the catalyst for future events. Absolutely. Number two, uh, hoods around Elijah Muhammad, that latter-day version of Father Divine plus guns, is not the product of a white man's fancy. The author does not miss a chance to disparage so-called black leaders. Father Devine was noted for his inexpensive restaurants, which were frequented during the Depression of the 1930s. I learned about him from my father, who ate in them. Wow. Number three, the author. Uh, I, uh, I resist the cowardly temptation to overtip him just because the black and Martin Luther King has been murdered. This remark seemed almost as if the author was congratulating himself on what a brave act it was not over-tipping the, <laughs> the driver. <laughs> uh, chapter 9, number 1. Uh, the fashionable lie in Stokely Carmichael's circle is that Jews are the principal slumlords in the ghetto, whereas the truth is that 52% of all the black buildings and 20% of the buildings that are mostly black are owned by blacks. But then the Carmichaels of the world can only subsist financially and psychologically by lapping up all the hate and nourishing pus of history. The author clearly detests Stokely Carmichael. In today's media, I suppose Gary would call him a race hustler, Al Sharpton, uh, given the author's history. I am suspicious of his statements on black ownership. Where are the quotes? Can you give us a source? Anyway, uh, number two, a 55-year-old lady 
a famous hostess of society functions was raped by, by blacks while walking three dockhounds in broad daylight in the middle of, uh, of city public square. Again, I am suspicious of the truth of this story. Oh, no, we got two people who are doubtful. Oh, no. Uh, number three, uh, the least one could say is that perhaps America has found her new redskins, but certainly not her new pioneers. This is a very confusing metaphor for me. Is the author equating the riots with the so-called Indian Wars? Neither were successful for non-white victims. Maybe he suggests that the reason that there are no new pioneers is because the pioneers are still white and in charge. That makes sense. Uh, uh, I guess we can, okay. Number four, they didn't seem to be aware of the privilege they have, that of living in a historic moment, a moment when you can hear, albeit barely, the whimper of a new world being born. A similar statement is used today by racist suspects regarding the Black Lives Matter Antifa protests. The riots of the 1960s did not bring a new world, and I doubt that the current events will either. Only a replacement, only a refinement of the global system of racism, white supremacy. Indeed. Number five, the idea of danger is asinine. The panic comes from within, and it bears no relation to the existence of any exterior threat. America has lived safe in the smiling knowledge of her Negroes, and suddenly she no longer recognizes them, and the natural consequence is fear. I found this passage interesting. Any fear of their victims often translates into violent response by racist man, racist woman, and racist child. Chapter 10. Number one. Uh, this chapter centered on the eighth sex, eighth area and ninth area, war, uh, areas of people activity, and the confusion surrounding these areas of people activity for non-white victims. Moreover, the chapter seems to go back and forth, alternating between past and present, which is symbolic of the confusion surrounding non-white victims. Number one, the author's discussion of red continues the theme of homoeroticism and fetishism of black males, which is associated with white culture. For example, the author's description of red, the physical glow of this child of California, striking good looks, the reference to sucking boys, didn't even have the excuse of homosexuality, and later descriptions of red, the strength and power of a body, broad shoulders, and massive chest his earthy, massive, solid, physical aura of born fighter. Number two, in addition to the misandry, which is a major part of this text thus far, references to black males as criminals, pimps, drug addicts, etc., the author does not neglect to exhibit continual misogyny towards black women, referring to them as whores, referring to them as a bushy wilderness, mentioned previously. Uh, compare that to the author's description of Madeline, Red's son. Oh, we didn't get that far. I'll stop right there. Uh, okay. Stop right there. Lots of fascinating notes uh, from our caller. Let's see. We have enough time. I'll get to some of my notes. If other folks have 
thoughts this year that we've missed totally. Uh, we'll hear from you as well. Wow. So many notes. I took so many notes this week. Seems like a lot of we hit people who said they normally don't even call in who called in because fascinating read. I am regretfully like this is not like, oh, wow, like when we read Medical Apartheid, Warmth of Other Sons. I was, oh, wow, proud, happy to announce. Oh, new book in the top ten. This is outstanding. Always love reading something great. Romaine Gary's White Dog is going to be in Gus T's top ten regretfully. Not that I think this is, you know, great reading or anything like that. Not at all. Not even close. This is a remarkable reveal. What does it mean to be white? Even this is a little bit of Dr. Welsing's what do white people talk about when there are no non-white people around, a little bit. Getting some of the thoughts, you know, a white person just writing about these events and what have you, not to mention all the symbolism from the ISIS papers and uh, getting uh, some a racist thoughts on what's happening at the time period. It is staggering. Regretfully announcing Romaine, Gray, uh, Romaine Gary's White Dog in Gusty's Top Ten, right alongside Medical Apartheid, A Terrible Thing to Waste. Warmth of Other Suns, The Isis Papers, we've read some great ones. The Man Not, Delectable Negro, definitely got some comparisons. Uh, let's see. Notes from this week, I totally agree. Our female caller, she said the white dog is Roman. Gary, that is exactly what I said when he, the passage on page 81, he said, unleashing in me a savage. And this is not the first time he said that before. Uh, he said it when... He first arrived at uh, Gene Seberg's little Iowa town, and her brother died, and they got all off on, you know, some white woman married a nigger, and he said he was there with no black people. He felt like he could walk around and not be on a leash. Uh, But here he says, unleashing in me a savage, helpless, almost growling hostility and belligerence, aiming its futile threat at fate. And he continues almost as if fate had a throat in which I could plant my fangs. Absolutely. I agree. So I had said that Romaine Gary is the white dog. Uh, self-hatred, a lot of that this week, and I, that is the exact chapter from the ISIS papers that I read about anxiety, alienation, self-hatred. That is exactly what Dr. Welsing talks about in the ISIS papers. He says, uh, raging, ending in self-hatred at my frustration and impotence. He does all that talking about black penises and virility and talking about himself as being frustrated, impotent, a mini-ocean churned back into mere literature at each attempt to transcend and to overcome, reduced again to murmuring the words of man's first defeat. That's even ISIS paper section that I read, the original sin, that never-missing link between ape and Einstein. And I said, wow, we just read Einstein before this book and the missing link. She talks about that in the book that white people will come up with all kinds of ways to disguise, to hide their connection to the original parents, the parent people on the planet being black people. They will say that they descended from apes. Missing link, we don't even know where we came from, but it wasn't you Negras. Man, Dr. Welsing, I wish wish we had talked about this with her. Let's see. Continuing. 
so they're talking about the dog being starved by keys. Uh, the dog won't eat from black people. We talked about this with Dr. Perry, and I said I was a little thinking, wow, is that true? Dog won't take food from a black person? And he said that even some of the listeners said, hey, dogs have phenomenal sense of smell. Uh, you know, it might be you could train them where they could pick up the smell from a more melanated person and – I mean, particularly with all that information, you got centuries of training where you said they got articles where German shepherds in the States still respond to German commands that would be like 50, 60 years ago, and they have not been on that hemisphere ever, but they, wow, talk about epigenetics. Uh, but anyway, so starving the dog, or they even describe it as starving if the dog will starve itself, remember Einstein talked about that. You don't have white people who are so racist that they would turn away a black physician. They have trained dogs to be so anti-black that they will starve themselves. I would die before I take a hamburger from a coon. Are you serious? Are you serious? I didn't even believe that last weekend. Woo, man. Do not underestimate racist man, racist woman. Let's see. Uh, da, da, da. I pointed out the same line when Carruthers says that he's a racist. Believe people when they tell you, and then he follows it, the same thing. They'll say that everybody's racist, and it's been a lot of that in this book. Stokely Carmichael is racist, and, you know, all the black people are racist. And he says, only not the way you all are, all of you, black or white. Uh, and he says, oh, yeah, this is coming out of my ass. Whether you're yellow, green, blue, or chocolate, Thomas in New York says exactly what I said, delectable Negro. Mr. Fuller talks about that. Why is it that black people would be referred to as chocolate? Like you just named colors, yellow, green, blue, black. That's what it would be. Yellow, green, blue, brown. That's what it would be, another color. Purple, that's what they say. Blue, black, that's what they say. Why wouldn't it just be another color? Chocolate? Okay. Delectable Negro. Uh, there's a reason that one's in the top ten. Uh, so then Keyes comes down later on, and he says, because uh, Carruthers accuses him of taking out his frustration with white people on the dog. So Keyes says, I don't go looking for a dog when I want to get even with his masters. I go looking for them, in them in italics, with my gun. I don't know. In fact, Remember last week, Carruthers, he said, you got all these Black Panthers who talk, and he had it in italics. That's right, talk. What are they going to – that's the way I feel about Keith. If he said this at all, but I mean, really, really, whatever. Uh, Carruthers didn't seem too afraid. We'll put it that way. Did Carruthers, he's got his wife, uh, Jean, his young white wife, hanging out with this guy when he's not around coming in his house? Did they seem afraid of Keith, like he might snap? Say, you know what? You crackers have got on my nerves. Let me get my gun. No. Continuing. Son of a bitch was said so many times this week. I said, wow. Metronome. Metronome. Right out of the ISIS papers, the section I read at the beginning of the book, where she talks about the prevalence of that phrase. Uh, and it's who is being called the son of a bitch. Keys being called the son of a bitch first time around. You pay attention to that, too. Uh, let's see. Keys is a black Muslim. He said this line before. It's like he keeps saying it over. I, I don't know if that's to mean that he did say that, uh, but to keep saying it over and over again that black Muslims get a paid trip to Mecca for five pairs of pink ears or five uh, scalps, whatever it is, but that gets said multiple times in the book. 
that he's so filled with hate? Are the Muslims training dogs to attack white people since they're so filled with hate? Rhetorical. Uh, the first aid kit, I thought that was a great metaphor as well. Keys is so full of hate. Uh, you feel like looking for a first aid kit the moment he comes in. I said that before. They said his job, he drains snakes of venom. Like, come on. That's how much hate he has in him. <laughs> he's immune to snake venom. He can go because he's got more poison in him. Than, come on. Come on. Come on. Let's see. Uh, okay, the you all, I suspect some of you at least, don't know things that are going to happen later uh, in the text. Like he keeps making comments like this, the author, uh, Gary, when he says, I don't think I ever before in my life misjudged a man so badly. I saw in Keys my own little idealistic ferments, a cheap trash hallelujah of universal love and brotherhood, deep sunk deposits of humanitarian creed, all of that. That's one of the many reasons I feel like Romain Gary is so pretentious. He has a lot of passages like that where it's just like, oh, I like to hear myself talk, and I'm such a, a skilled, award-winning writer, and, and I'm such a humanitarian, and I'm writing for the greater good. I'm not a writer. Like, get out of here. <laughs> like, get, what are you even talking about? You're a cheap racist. And like I said before, Jeffrey Epstein, man, you got a wife that's like 25 years young. She's young enough to be your daughter. Like, get out of here. Uh, let's see. Son of a bitch again, bottom of 86. Please, somebody put him away. You can't change the son of a bitch. He's a true believer. And when I realized that everything I'm writing here was see the light in print, the intellectual eunuch and a feet snob in me can almost hear the testicles of real men sound the charge in the name of hard-boiled virility. And then he just continues with hard types, the hardest you can get. Like, wow. And in fact, that strikes me as being effeminate. You have to go around chasing children. You can't even have a balanced, healthy relationship with a woman. You have to go chasing children. Black, as he said, he likes black women. He said that last week. You got to go chasing children. <clears throat> Uh, and or you can't even get a white woman. You got to go get a, basically a white child. She's 23. You're 45 or whatever it is. You're not a real man. You got to just go raping children. Let's see. Mm. Aren't they saying that now? When he uh, this is the beginning of chapter eight, going to Chicago, hitting in Chicago. Uh, he says so. He's talking about this young hostess behind the counter and she's in tears. How's it all going to end? Our culture is collapsing. Aren't they saying that like right now? In Seattle? In Chicago? No, that's why they saying that like right now. Like, man, timing. Uh, continuing. Uh, he has so much, like the timing is amazing. He has so much of the rhetoric that is used currently on discussions of racism. He says in America you never see what one calls in France uh, a discussion, which degenerates into a pitched battle. That's exactly what they say right now. We don't, we don't talk about it. We never had a dialogue. We never sat down. That's all they're talking about, whether coded or not coded, but that is all they're ever talking about is racism, white supremacy. We are the ones, victims, non-white people, that don't understand that. Let's see. Wow, the metaphors. and So Dr. King has just been assassinated. That evening in the taxi, taking us to dinner, we hear 
on the radio news of the assassination of Martin Luther King. The driver is a black. <laughs> One of our, our female callers pointed that out today, and I've been saying it throughout this that third week reading this book. He has so many phrases of the blacks, the blacks, the blacks, not black person or this black woman or this black man, none of it. The blacks, the blacks, a black. Things, not people, things, it's. Gene turned so pale, the driver seems even blacker by contrast. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Just all kinds of memes. Oh, looked like a piece of soot next to this white childish angel. Angel. Then he gets into all this about uh, is it a white who killed him. Uh, as someone who st- I took a class with Julian Bond, studied with him, uh, studied the so-called civil rights movement, I could not come up with one name of a black person who wanted to kill Dr. King. Minister Malcolm apologized. Now, he did get stabbed in the chest while he was in New York. I believe that person had mental problems, so that does not count as, in my view, if somebody wants to count that one, well, there you go. Uh, but I do not count that as a black person. Oh, I'm going to kill Dr. King right now. Dr. King, the sound clip that I love playing the day before he was killed by a white man in the federal government, the sound clip that I love to play is our sick white brothers. That was why they were checking the plane. Him going to Tennessee wasn't because we got these rowdy Negroes, Stokely Carmichael and such out here, black Muslims that are trying to gun me down. I don't ever, ever remember. That's another one. Give me a footnote, Romaine Gary. You should give me a speech. You, you listen to Stokely Carmichael enough to call him out, right? Give me a speech. Give me something. H. Rap Brown, give me something. Black Panthers, Huey P. Newton, give me something. Eldridge Cleaver, you read his book. Give me something. Where <laughs> One of these rowdy Negroes was talking about killing Dr. King. Come on. Uh, let's see. Gene looks at me almost imploringly. Yes, I know. The sickening, ghastly thought that Martin Luther King may have been killed by a black. <laughs> there it is again. I'm so glad I read that. Killed by a black as was Malcolm X. Now, I don't even have to pause right there. Pro was not like public knowledge at this time, okay, but you're a white man. You're a white man who fought in World War II. You've traveled the globe. You're an informed white man. Your wife is a victim of Pro. In fact, as I said last week, he would eventually come out about 10 years from this before he took his own life and make an announcement that his wife committed suicide because of the FBI's Cointel Pro campaign. That same campaign that did kind of the soft version with your wife just writing notes to get on her nerves actually participated in assassinations of black people like Fred Hampton, Malcolm X, Dr. King, Coretta Scott King, we wrote her autobiography, to come back with that tackiness. The Negroes just killed Malcolm X. The Negroes could have killed Dr. King. They wanted to, and he continues, when his triumphant, growing, inspiring personality began to be viewed as a threat by the hoods around Elijah Muhammad, that latter-day version of Father Divine plus guns is not the product of a white man's fancy or sick, wishful thinking to deny that this thought, this horror, had crossed many a black militant's mind is to belittle the scope of the American tragedy. And he has that in capital letters, American tragedy. I don't even know what that is. It is a global system of white supremacy. Uh, let's see. Next. And he said this before. He, I said that I thought it was peculiar. He said that he saw 
Malcolm X in the face of every black American. He said that before, and I said, what? What is that? That doesn't even make sense. That just sounds like some projection. You're all militant Negroes type of a thing. And then he says it again. For the next few days, I will thus read hate on every black face. I hate that more often than not isn't there at all my own self-hatred. I at least appreciate right there. Thank you for being an honest racist. If such a thing exists, you're just being a racist. You just want to go out and, oh, they're out to kill us, the same thing the white people are doing now. Uh, let's see. Incidentally, we read, uh, or we didn't read, I read uh, Eula Biss, Notes from No Man's Land. That is a white woman suspected racist uh, who I believe is in Illinois, maybe right there in Chicago. Uh, I think she's at Northwestern. She was the guest on the program 11 years ago. She has a sentence in her book that is all about racism. Like, we don't talk about racism, but all about racism. Line in her book where she says, white people, we know what we've done. We know what we've done to black people, and we know what we deserve. And we talked about that a lot. I thought that was one of the most important lines in the book. Uh, she said, it's, again, white people are not ignorant. I don't read this as a white guilt that he's talking about. It's we know what we've done to these niggers, and if they get their act together, like, oh, man. They might be after us. That's not a, I feel bad about having raped you all or done all this. We're going to keep doing this forever, but, oh, they might figure it out, and we might be in trouble a little bit. Like, ooh, that is very different. I want to make sure I get that distinction in. Eulabus, Notes from No Man's Land, Archives, 2009. Page 93, as always, young rioters burn mainly their own houses, which means that for every store kept by a white, five black families will be homeless. That's a pretty common one. Mr. Fuller has even talked about that and even some of the reasons for that. Now, that even that contradicts a little bit what he said about Stokely Carmichael. How does he say here? Make sure I read it again. For every store kept by a white, five black families will be homeless. That would suggest you got quite a bit of white ownership of black living places, not what he said about Stokely Carmichael earlier or later, I guess, from here. Uh, let's see. I took a lot of notes. I don't think I'll be able to get them all. I'll get in, like, one more, and then we'll get to the second audio. I need to get stuck. Stokely Carmichael's circle is that Jews are the principal slumlords in the ghetto, whereas the truth is that 52% of, of the all-black buildings and 20% of the buildings that are mostly black are owned by blacks. Footnote, same thing I said uh, when we read Dr. Africa's work. Footnote, you don't have a reference of any sort. I do not believe this. We read uh, Beryl Satter, uh, her work, Family Property. She is a white woman in Chicago. She talked about her dad specifically being one of these slum owners uh, and how he tried to help, at least in Chicago, work against this problem, but it was overwhelming. In fact, she has a whole chapter in that book where she called it economic terrorism. Talk about metaphors. She said it was comparable to lynching what white people were doing in Chicago. No, and she has a lot of statistics. Nowhere in her book did she have anything about 52% of black, of all black buildings being owned by black people. Get out of here. Uh, that's what I would expect from a racist. Lies and no footnotes. That's why I holler about that on a regular basis. Uh, the Carmichaels of this world can only subsist financially and psychologically by lapping up all the hate-nourishing pus of history? Like, wow, that's hard. You really despise Stokely Carmichael, huh? 
Kwame Ture, Ready for Revolution. Long, too long for us to read in the book club, but man, lapping up so he's not even a person either. I thought dogs, like that savage that you have trying to rehabilitate, they lap up things, not people, generally. I mean, we, they use the phrase lap dog, not human beings, uh, once again. And then he's got Keys, Stokely, Carmichael. That's, he's got lots of black people that just lap up hate again. Have any of these black people trained the dog to chomp on white people? What are they doing other than, man, racism, white supremacy is terrible. We should do something about that to varying degrees. Carmichael, Malcolm X, Dr. King, all of these folks. Racism is bad. We should do something about that. I had more notes. We'll stop there. In my top ten, reluctantly. Uh, let's see. I'll check. Did anybody that we missed? Let me see. Anybody that had a hand up that we missed totally? All righty. I do not see any extra hands. Do I see any extra? Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'll call her in Norway. Yes, sir. Uh, you can go ahead. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like you to give the list of your top ten again. I really would appreciate that. Um, one of the things that I notice here is, uh, it, well, in the scene with uh, Keys and Caruthers, I had the question, is training the white dog um, to harm black people, um, isn't that worse than starving, temporarily starving the white dog um, to remove his, tra- his um, trained racism so he doesn't harm anybody? Um, the central tension in the book seems to be like uh, this author, which is an animal lover, um, and you wonder if his love for animals is more important than the lives of 20 million black people. And uh, scrolling, scrolling. Yes, this very this line in 91 I thought was really interesting. Um, when they talk about the assassination of Martin Luther King, um, there's the juxtaposition of white female and skin whiteness with black male death and trauma. Jean turned so pale that the driver seems blacker by contrast. And the line before that is that is the assassination of Martin Luther King the driver is black. I thought that was a very interesting literary method of um, framing the biggest concern of uh, white supremacy, as according to Dr. Waltzin. And then further later in that in the text, um, Gene is saying, it's the white man who killed him. And then his response is immediately to displace the accusation from a white male to a black male. Um, I thought that was fascinating. It's like he hears what he wants to hear, or it's projection and reaction formation, I think Dr. Wilson would say. And then when they're leaving the taxi cab, 
And then he says, I resist the cowardly temptation to overtake him just because he's a black man and Martin Luther King has been murdered. Actually, I think that would be good. That would be some form of <laughs> repatriations. I mean, and why does he call it cowardly? Is that in, as in submitting to black people? I thought that I thought that actually it would have been appropriate for him to give him give this poor man some money, more money because he may not be able to work for a couple of days because he's in so much shock. Also, I thought that home ownership statistics were obviously lies. Um, interestingly, when he talks about Jews being nondescript whites. Um, and he puts Greeks, Italians as well as nondescript whites. That that um, repeats some of what uh, Dr. Welton has said about in some of what we've heard about white people not being. Some white people are not really considered white. Later in that page, he, he says the mayor of Washington, who is black, and given police orders not to shoot, and then his friend is got killed in a knife and boot. So he's framing the black mayor as useful, as useless and responsible for his friend's death, especially since he, this mayor told um, the police not to shoot except where human lives are in danger. So he's saying, what about my friend? Isn't my friend's life um, not valuable? Next page where he says, you have another Wilson moment where you have white people being surrounded by a black belt. I call that a double welting moment because you're not just having the minority status um, being, but you're also using the word belt as a um, synonym for phallus. And uh, when he's talking about America, it seems as if it's one, and he's laughing at her, his, the America's problem with her Negroes. It sounds as one white supremacist laughing at another white supremacists, France laughing at America and their troubles with how they're handling their white supremacy. I need to read Soul and Ice. That's something that came out. I was like, and I haven't read that book. I need to learn about Eldridge Cleaver. And, uh, yes, let me see. Is there anything? Oh, when he talks about soul being slaves, Soul meaning slave. So when these two brothers are have this code word to support one another and recognize one another, he immediately attaches it to being slaves. As soon as he can, he went real quick with that. Um, oh, and this moment where I think in this book is very interesting when the author is in a conversation with a black man. Um, because then you seconds? get to see, yeah, then you get to see a lot of the, um, what's useful about this book to me is how you can see how a racist thinks in real time. Um, but I think I'll leave it there because, um, so thank you for the opportunity. And I'm not sure if I'll put this up in my top 10 yet, but it's it's quite useful. Thank you. I will take quite useful as constructive, for sure. Soul on Ice, I think we should uh, put that one in the book club. I'm done reading for the year, so hopefully there's an audio book of it already. Uh, we will get right to the second audio segment, so we have time to share afterwards. This is 
Romaine Gary, White Dog. We're resuming in chapter Where 10. will that lead you ultimately? Ultimately, that's just metaphysics as far as we're concerned. He hesitates, a flicker of disbelief, of doubt, of knowing better than that of American horse sense showing through the fabric of a wild dream. But I'll tell you something, mon vieux. He jumps from Argo to English and back into French again. What we're after and what we'll get ultimately, that's the world you've come up with, no? Is an independent black nation made possible and kept going by white money for at least one generation. That an old friend like Red, the man who knows me better than all the books I have written know their author, should come up to me with a hymn to the Republic of New Africa shows more than all your studies put together how far that championship contest as to who talks bigger raises the stakes higher and proves himself more demanding and a hundred percent black has gone within the ranks and leadership of black power the greater the frustration the greater the dream that is how behind ghetto walls Jews became lovers of abstraction Kabbalists and Einsteins an unbearable reality combined with the impossibility to change it tends to lead to abstractions for abstractions sake and unreality becomes more realistic than reality itself more true more convincing simply because it looks at you with the eyes of justice the temptation is to say nothing this is not logic speaking it is hurt and you can't argue with that but this man is a close friend and masking your thoughts for tactful reasons of compassion isn't good enough come on red not you or not that this talk about the Republic of New Africa is really seeking refuge and solace in myths messianic talk look at the Jews Israel listen maybe someday you will have an all-black independent state in the south but that can only happen when all Colossus nations USA Russia China India reach that far-off stage of our civilization the end of nationalism and the emergence of local semi-independent communities a triumph of the human scale over the inhuman monster states it is possible it may happen but in that context black or white won't mean a thing anyway it will become totally irrelevant what I am saying is that a black Israel within America postulates such a change of attitude, tradition, and outlook that if and when it takes place, the scope of the mutation it presupposes will make it obsolete, a throwback solution to a no longer existing problem. Right now, all this kind of talk means is putting the screws on white society. Tactics. 
nursing a dream at the expense of today's reality. It's harmless. Do I need to point out that Ron Karinga's getting less trouble, to say the least, from the FBI than the Black Panthers who don't talk about carving a black state for the blacks out of America? Ron Karinga's attitude is as safe and non-subversive as Carmichael's when he calls for the destruction of all that is white. That isn't subversion. That's big mouth. No danger there. Whites smile all around. What hurts me is that mask of blankness, that guarded mask on the face of a man who has always trusted me before. Tu vois a très chose view? Do you see another way out? Yes. I had left them back there in Paris, 108 Rue du Bac, fifth floor, living in those sauce les toits, former servants' quarters where all that is young and struggling, the future of France, lives, thinks, and gets ready to take over from us. He is young, black, and American, one of Red's two twin sons, Ballard, age 22, she is 23. French, white, very white and pretty in that unpretentious, unshowy, and inner beauty over mere perfection of features. Ballard is a deserter from the U.S. Army in Germany. The desertion had nothing to do with protest or dissent, with Vietnam or rejection of American imperialism, as with so many draftees who seek asylum in Sweden or elsewhere. Ballard went AWOL and became a deserter out of love for a French girl. He had met her in Weisbaden, where she was au pair with a German family. She had been sick, about with pneumonia. She was told to take a long rest and went back to Paris. Two months after the separation, Ballard, a fait l'amour, as we say in French, went over the fence and love took up once again its traditional La Boheme quarters under the roofs of Paris, which is the best thing that has ever happened to a roof. I think of Ballard sitting on the bed, a hippie metal on his bare chest, and I can almost hear his voice filling its truth, the uneasy, empty silence that has fallen between Red and me. Fuck em all. He repeats it again and again, scornfully, spitefully, with that angry resentment against all the vicious laws, limitations, and tyrannies man imposes upon his own kind as if those of nature were not cruel enough. Fuck em dead. To begin with, I don't want to go kill some yellow son of a bitch as training for killing some white son of a bitch later. I don't dig that. Fuck them all, good and proper man, and take them away in straitjackets. What I mean is, screw them. Absolutely, I mean, and excuse me if I vomit. You know, there's a limit to everything, and when you reach it, there's no more limit. No more limit. 
it gets so big on you you just don't give a damn about any of it any longer because the way shit keeps piling up around you it's not shit no more it's world government he throws his cigarette butt out the window anyway I got her pregnant Madeline is washing dishes in the sink by the window her pale soft skin has the kind of smooth matteness that is both light and shadow evocative of cool fountains Spanish patios and Moorish veils delicate fragile bones that black flowing hothouse hair of the French girls in Algeria Albert Camus loved so much her parents had arrived a few days earlier from Toulouse where they run a restaurant they are Pieds Noir Blackfeet as the Algerian born French call themselves a mixing of some distant Spanish Sanchez with our old Auvergne that province which has often done for France what a prudent sense of measure can do for true greatness no one had warned them that Ballard was black they came to see me we talked about things then I said now this is how it is he's a Negro oh well the father said and the mother whose shyness had a nervous smile with a gold tooth in it didn't show any surprise shock or whatever and then Madeline's father said something that frees a man completely from the color of his skin we would like to meet him as a rule in France no less than in America the words a Negro always seem enough to describe a man in his totality these French folks from Algeria knew better they saw him the only thing that upset them was the desertion a man can't do a thing like that to his country said Mr. Sanchez whose name by the way is not Sanchez Ballard looked unhappy I said there'll be an amnesty sooner or later Vietnam can't go on much longer and what will happen in the meantime they can't live here I'll take care of permits no problem I feel this silence between red and me is driving us apart it carries us away into exile from each other it's conning us of 20 years of friendship but I am wrong the silence is nothing but a question he won't ask though it's there all right behind his sullen stern expression the silence is all about Ballard he can't forgive him his determined pursuit of a personal chance his desertion both from the army and from his blackness he is deeply hurt that his own son should refuse to go and get his training as a future black power fighter out there in the US guerrilla school in the jungles of Vietnam this grudge or shame is not much different from what a diehard American flag waver feels when his son refuses to fight for his country any news from Philip his face lights up a smile at first and then he quickly hides his fatherly pride in a laugh he's doing fine learning the ropes 
just grabs as much of it as he can. Two years in the Marines, and now he got a transfer to a top-notch unit. You know, the best, as good as the Green Berets. Un vrai serait là. He's the real thing. My mind goes blank. This is one of those situations where I am losing contact not only with reality, but with the human brain itself. The perfect logic of this absurdity, the paradox, the unreality of this overly realistic logic, which makes a father smile contentedly because his son is an American hero, a member of a crack unit out there in Vietnam, and thus getting top-notch training, which he will then put to good use fighting white America, raises a question that is no longer merely one of ideology, dialectics, tactics, or fanaticism, but the question of our brain itself. It becomes more and more obvious to me that all ideologies raise the question of the nature of our brain every time they raise the question of the nature of our society. With the weight of available information and evidence, it is difficult to deny the flagrantly apparent fact from Auschwitz to Prague and from Vietnam to racism that our intelligence is the victim of a persistent hereditary genetic flaw in our brain of which our intelligence itself is unaware at the very moment it carries out the orders it receives from that original defect. In Red's case, in the face of such absurd, delirious, and yet at the same time perfectly practical, sensible logic, it is really the human brain crying out for help. The pride, the satisfaction, the fatherly smile, all this because his son has become a hero killing Charlie as training for the future black against white battles in the streets of American cities, a world of fantasies, a groping for a fourth dimension by a mind and a soul caught within a three-dimensional ghetto and seeking an emergency exit through the realistic planning of unreality. What made all this for a transcendental, almost mythological way out, it was the very presence of Red, his earthy, massive, solid physical aura of a born fighter, the kind you can see in Diego Rivera frescoes of Mexican workers and peasants. If only Red had the hate-filled, tight-lipped, sharp-featured, white-burning physique of a fanatic of one of our French ideological abstraction addicts, the whole thing would have been much more normal in its abnormality, more acceptable and easier to bear. But my friend had the strong, self-assured presence of a man whose feet are firmly on the ground and whose head is far removed from the clouds of bloody fantasies and messianic idealism. I look at the black men and women around me, almost asking for help, but we're speaking French and they are out of it. African dress, African hair, earrings, 
one wonders at the absence of tribal scars. And under this disguise, the presence of what is most typically and authentically American, its black people. A strength of belief, an idealism untouched by sophisticated worldliness, and the total absence in their vocabulary of the one word that is the ABC of France, skepticism. The quality of sacred naivete that has carried mankind victoriously through defeat ever since it first crawled out of the primeval sea and which, once upon a time, was the hallmark of the American dream. I am fighting desperately to control my urge to tell him the truth, the blunt, hard, sobering truth about his son, his American son. He is a hero all right. I saw in Paris a few of Philip's letters to his brother. I have one right under my eyes as I write this. The letter is dated September 1967. At that time, Ballard was still with the army in Germany. Here it is. I keep hearing all kinds of talk about deserters. Sweden, they say, is full of them. Well, we don't have any of that here. We never had one in my outfit. That just doesn't happen. But fellows keep hearing about it in the news they get from home, so maybe it's true. There are guys who are just born civilians. They have no guts. They have no business being in the army. We have nothing but real fighting men here. The best. Volunteers. No draftees. No snot-nosed kids. The real thing. And hear this. Philip plans to stay in the army. He wants to make the army his career. He repeats that over and over again in all his letters to Ballard. I know nothing of what his original intentions were when he volunteered, but this I do know. A black man has found his true place as a man, as an American, by taking the oldest road to man's virile brotherhood, which is killing a common enemy. You give people a common enemy and you give them equality, virile comradeship and brotherhood. That's how it's always been and that's how it still is. You get yourself a common enemy and brotherhood sets in. Nothing surprising there. Brotherhood isn't made for dogs. Any son of a bitch like myself who has been bombing and killing right and left for many years will tell you that if it's brotherhood you want, you will find it on combat units. There were no French, Arabs, Jews, or blacks in the Foreign Legion, shock troops, or in my Lorraine squadron. There were only brothers who killed and got killed. I am not quite sure that's what General Eisenhower had in mind when he said there are no atheists in foxholes. I don't remember having ever experienced such a surge of compassion, warmth, 
and of love comparable in its close to tears intensity to what I felt as I stood there listening to Red rave on at me in blind mad ignorance of the all too human truth about that son of his out there in Asia learning the job. It was so clear so unbearably clear that in his imagination Philip was to become one day something like Black Power's Che Guevara and that crazy hope born out of centuries of subhuman inhuman deviralization was burning in the eyes of one of the most hard-headed practical realistic men I have ever known a man who had in him the makings of a great American statesman that skunk hardly writes me anymore too busy I guess translation too busy killing Charlie too busy learning the job but then they've got military censorship out there so he can't write what he really feels they've taken him out of combat right now you know Phil reminds me of your Ben Bella an NCO in the French army 15 years of service all the French medals you can think of all this to learn patiently cunningly how to kick you out of Algeria then suddenly quietly how's Ballard he's going to marry the girl won't work never does he'll end up the way I started over there kept by whores I don't think so he shrugs me off he'll end up kept by that girl who will be turning tricks in Pajal they haven't got a chance his in-laws will look after them if he can't find work he stares at me in disbelief you mean they approve of the marriage yes they think Phil's alright he mulls it over obviously confused France is not a monolithic country there aren't only bastards there the one credit you have to give that old country is that it is a thousand things and not all of them stink which is about the closest you can get to civilization Phil's thinking about officer's rank. Il va passer officier. Il est melon, c'est salut là. He's a smart one. The smile tries to be cynical, but the pride isn't. I think of a good American father, star-spangled banner, and don't ask what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Flaring up again blacks who holler against the war in Vietnam are playing white America's game this war is the best thing that ever happened to us every time they talk peace I get scared Jesus we're being given our best chance ever and we've got to grab it with both hands best training in the world for our revolution that's what Vietnam is Madeline had lent me a few of the letters Philip had written to his twin and they are here in front of me the letters are full of we 
We do what we can to help these people here, but they have to help themselves. We can't keep doing their work for them. We try to fight corruption, but it just seems to be a part of their nature. A black man writing about a different race with unmistakable superiority. We can't stay here forever, so they've got to learn democracy. We... I began to panic in the little living room, stuffy and hot, with that eternal box of the air conditioner against the window, and why is it that manufacturers can't design something less repulsive in its ugliness? A wild beating of the heart, a choking feeling, my old mysterious claustrophobia is at my throat again. Something in me is there as if by mistake, trapped, locked up, and trapped within a human shape and skin. Something in me has blundered into a man's makeup, call it soul for lack of a more scientific word, and leave it at that. I'll drive you to your hotel. We leave. As we walk downstairs, everything that has four or five stories in America speaks of the 19th century. He suddenly asks with a trace of irony, How's your white dog coming along? I stop and blink at him. Now how the devil Jean told me about it a month ago in L.A. Heartbreaking, eh? Sacre liqueur. I don't like that mean smile. Yes, Red, we are what is known in France as bleeding liberals. Come to think of it, I prefer bleeding to bloodbaths. He pats me on the shoulder. Come on, you won't hear a word from me against liberals. Sure, they're ineffectual, inefficient, but they're the buffer tiers parti, third estate between reaction and us. They've always been that. Reactionaries always had to cut through liberals to get at the activists, and it drives them nuts because it tears the mask off their faces and reveals them as reactionaries. I know how you feel about that pooch. The dog is being re-educated. Fine. Great. What about re-educating the environment? I've got a dog on my hands. Not a historical task. How's Jeannie? Great. Lovely. All I want is a little peace and quiet. Yeah? I hear there's a hormonal slowdown after 50. Vete faire foot. Screw you. He shakes his hand and goes tisk tisk with an expression of wonder. I must say that idea of dousing a dog with gasoline and setting it on fire. Poor Jean, she was shaken. I don't know what the hell he's talking about, but this is not exactly the time to ask questions about what I take to be a metaphor. It's not every day that it is given to you to see a civilization blow sky high just when it is at the peak of its wealth, world influence, and power. 
That will wrap us for this week. We will pick things up. Ooh, yikes. So I'm not sure. <laughs> we will be picking things up next week. Might be in D.C. next week. Yikes. Uh, we will have to see. We will have to see. But uh, either next week or very soon we will be resuming. Like, man, if we have to miss even for a counter-racist retreat, I'm going to be kind of upset. Like, man, we're supposed to be on Chapter 11. Like, uh, ah, man, we're still in the middle of the – yeah. Oh, they got looters. Look at this. Look at this. They got the looters right there. Yeah. I'm going to be a little spicy if we have to miss this for the retreat next week. But anyway, the number for this week, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to join us. Uh, I didn't even get all my notes in from last segment, but I did want to also say that the commentary where Red, his uh, friend from Paris, black male, where he's talking about black people needing to procreate, that that's how they're going to uh, end white supremacy by having sexual intercourse and they can get their numbers up to, I think, 50 million uh, was what he estimated. That was common. Uh, we've talked about that before. In fact, you can go into Cal's archives. Uh, Dorothy Roberts uh, killing the black body in Gusty Renegade's top ten. Uh, she was here in 2009, uh, a couple weeks literally after Eula Biss, he was on the program, and we talked about how that was a very common sentiment during the 1960s, that uh, you've had eugenics campaigns and all of that, and we just need to have sexual intercourse. I think there's a big uh, article with uh, one of the major, like, black publications uh, at that time period. I think, like, Ebony or Jet, one of them. Uh, but the late Dick Gregory uh, was on, like, the front page, and Dick Gregory, I think he had, like, nine, ten children, maybe even more than that, but I mean a lot, a lot of offspring. Uh, and it was that sort of sentiment. He said almost exactly what Red said in the book. So that type of idea was being promoted during the 1960s as exactly what he said, a way to, to work against racism and white supremacy, to just have a lot of black children uh, does not make logical sense to me, but that is pretty authentic for the time period. Uh, so let's see. All the folks who are with us first time around should be with us. If there are people who have not been able to speak at all, go ahead and get up now, uh, get a hand up now uh, so that we don't uh, miss you and have to wait till the last minute for you to speak. Uh, everyone who is with us with a hand up, line should be open. Feel free. Well, while folks are lollygagging, and we'll be sure to end promptly at program time so people are not waiting until the last minute to decide that they have something to share. Uh, we had our investor, uh, let's see, his additional commentary now that we've covered the rest of the material. Continuing, in addition to the Miss Andrew, which is a made, oh, we read that one, read that one, read that one. Number three, uh, Red's delusional fantasy of recruiting a black national army. Didn't we hear something about the Black Liberation Army? I thought we talked about that before. Woo! Uh, is recruiting a black liberation army from the ranks 
of former Vietnam vets is eerily similar to what happened recently in Louisville, Kentucky, with the black nationalist group uh, not effing around council, uh, coalition, sorry, uh, when one of the members shot themselves, Red's desire for uh, Red's desire of a all-black independent state in the South is also a stated goal of NFAC. The author's uh, the author response: What I am saying is that a black Israel within America postulates such a chance of attitude, tradition, and outlook that when and if it takes place, the scope of the mutation it presupposes will make it obsolete, a throwback to a no longer existing problem. I interpreted this to mean it will take the end of the global system of white supremacy for this to occur, thus rendering it unnecessary. <laughs> I think that's a good interpretation. Uh, oh, we didn't get to chapter 11. We didn't get to see. That's I said. Like, man, I'm excited to get to chapter 11. Like, man, you have to see if we can finagle something. All right, so we have to stop right there because we didn't get that far. We stopped at uh, chapter end of chapter 10. Uh, other folks who are with us have commentary to share? Can I be heard? Uh, yes, sir. Okay, um, let me check my Bluetooth. This, again, this is Mo from Dallas. Um, earlier notes I took, um, you know, a lot of them were brought up already. Um, the, 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 the fact that this man is a flagrant liar about 52% of the buildings being owned by blacks, I wrote that down. Um, uh, he did a lot of fear-mongering, um, if, you want, if you ask me, um, about uh, the, the being, his friend being, Knifed in a phone booth, um, and the 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 55 year old woman being raped uh, in the middle of the street and worried about her dog. Um, I, I tied that uh, directly to the the last read where where they brought up in California um, how you know um, it was, the potential of being robbed was like one in a thousand, but every individual you know assumed it was gonna they were gonna be that one, and also. Uh, the, uh, the old man and the old woman when she was photographing the cherry tree, uh, the quote was, uh, the old man was like a tree itself, um, but he was he was old and never to know bloom or spring again. Um, and um, and that's a, I thought that was a reference to impotence. And, uh, and bloom would, I guess, be like reproduction. And spring, I think he was talking about actually engaging in intercourse. So I thought that was very interesting. Um, and I think that's all I have right now. Thank you, my line. Much obliged, Mo in Dallas. Hopefully, we'll hear from you again as we continue through uh, the text. Uh, let's see, retired firefighter. We missed you first time around. Do you have commentary, sir? Uh, yes, I uh, kind of missed on the. Uh, a good portion of the reading from last week and and uh also uh the beginning of uh tonight uh but I did hear something in reference to uh the Republic of New Africa uh and uh I myself and some a few other uh locals in South Florida uh for a while had uh negotiations with that organization uh, 
at one time Miss Mrs. Shabazz was uh, affiliated with uh, with the organization when it first started, uh, and uh, one of the founders. Uh, we uh, basically uh, were were uh, in conference with for a while back in the 80s, uh, Mr. Obadelli. And uh, actually, uh, last had a meeting with them, uh, I'll say about a year, year and a half ago, basically just, you know, talking about some, the relationships that we had with them back in the 80s. That's primarily what the conversation was about. But, uh, yeah, that's just a thought that I... Uh, had as I heard the uh, the readings on on that particular organization, it actually actually it was uh, uh, there were they were uh, uh, seeking quote unquote that's the best word I can I can think right now of more than just one state. It actually was about uh, six or seven quote unquote states in the southeastern part of the concept that's called the United States. I believe Texas, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. Uh, I can't think of any anything else. It's probably maybe about an, another one or two. Uh, yes, of course, you know, it, it didn't come to any fruition at all, uh, but uh, yeah. Uh, that was just what I was thinking about. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, do we have other folks who had commentary to get in? Uh, we have about 15 minutes left in the broadcast. Yes, sir. I'll be heard. Yeah, man, what firefighter was disturbing, boy. I wouldn't drink the water there. <laughs> Could you imagine how much lead they'll put in the water? Um... I was talking in the earlier uh, segment about the use of uh, son of bitches in the context, um, in the in the conversation or in the book. Right? Um, Donald Trump, seventy percent of the NFL black, you know, and that was the word he used to describe them. Um, I think that's a definitely a word that black people got, a phrase that black people got from white. Um, I've never heard of any Nation of Islam member or even like a black Sunni Muslim, even the most pro-black ones, um, say anything about receiving something in the afterlife for harming white people. Uh, I think that that's, um, I don't know where he got that from, you know, but I think he might have just been being honest. Uh, making a statement, because I think that was the second time he said something about the pink ears. And, um, you know, of course, we all know what white looks like, and white people aren't white. So it's like we're not black, but, you know, it's you know they're more close to the pink. And I think he might have just been being honest in a very slick way. Um, and uh, I don't agree with the numbers. The person that voted in earlier, um, if they were very detailed in their notes, um, I didn't agree with the numbers that were given um, by the author either uh, when he was describing black ownership of apartments and homes and things of that nature. And um, 
recently during the campaign, um, white person classifies himself as Jewish, Bernie Sanders. He put out numbers in his attempt to increase, to double the amount of black businesses nationwide. According to the numbers his campaign put out, there is less than 150,000, 149 something thousand black owned businesses in the whole country, 22 million white owned businesses. Um, so I, I just don't see how in any place we own 50% of property or anything else. We don't own the businesses. And I'm my line. Thank you. Much obliged, Thomas in New York. Skepticism. System of racism, white supremacy. That's another reason, too, because I, I think in general uh, we need to be suspicious of individuals classified as white. Uh, so to have a book where you go into it knowing this is a white man who's known for lying. In fact, I can't even think of a book that I've read before where it's like, oh, yeah, this author, this white fellow is known for lying. So you should keep that in mind as you read. Like that alone, what they say, keep you on your toes. And have you questioning, like, is this accurate? Does he have supporting information, you know, in terms of what he's talking about? Important and just paying attention to what he's saying. Sons of bitches, pink ears, all the rest. Other folks have commentary they want to make sure they get in. Yeah, about 10 minutes. I'll get to some of my notes and check again. Don't think I'll be able to get through get to everything, the sucking boys that he was talking about in the first portion uh, of the reading this week, like the homoeroticism in this book, extraordinary. I'm so glad readers have uh, noted that. Wow. Uh, let's see. There were so many other things I would have touched about from the first audio segment. I'll see what I can get from the second. Notes that I took from the second audio segment as well. I'll kind of pick up midway. So... Oh, back up a little bit. Uh, let's see. They declared curfew. He said he had the privilege of witnessing a historical site. No one who saw it is likely to forget a machine gun on the steps of the United States president's residence. I was like, wow, I think we can see that, like, right now. That wouldn't even shock me. And what a phallic symbol to have, like, a tent. Matter of fact, we should ask Mr. Fuller. Do you remember, because he was in D.C. in 1968. He was there when uh, the Dr. King so-called riots uh, took place. He's talked about it repeatedly. He talked about white people being up in the trees and all that. Ask. Next time he does a program or someone calls him or what have you, hey, do you remember if they pulled a machine gun out on the front steps of the White House after Dr. King was killed and everything was going on? Do you remember that happening in D.C.? I'm going to ask, ask next time. Let's see. And we should verify, like, if that happened, they should have, like, something in a news clipping in the Washington Post or something that he said President Johnson ordered them to, you know, put it away. Uh, he says Africans in Paris, for example, those who accuse so many of procuring, are actually damning the countless whites. There's the sucking boys that talk about uh, Claude Brown has some of that in his work. Man, Child, in the Promised Land is his book. Eldridge Cleaver, Soul on Rice, among others, but I'm pretty sure that's the book he's talking about. We should read that in the book club, I said, get that audio version I thought it was, even if I thought all of this was accurate, Richard Pryor and other people have talked about how common it was for whites to sexually terrorize black people. Uh, this was a regular experience. So even saying that this was true 
something about this and the way that he's talking when he says, uh, in fact, that such and such a black who is a, a black, <laughs> such and such a black, not a black person, but such and such a black who today a lawyer, a political leader, or a writer was when starting out a man who lived on prostitutes' earnings, a criminal, a drug pusher, or an addict. Rare are the blacks who haven't had a whore among their maternal ancestors. Like, And so real whore was the white society. I mean, that's all well and good to add that in, but I mean, wow, that's the way that you think of black people. Criminals and whores, that's all of us. Doesn't matter, lawyer, mayor, writer, just a little bit of veneer over a criminal and whore. Okay. Keeping it real, Romaine Gary. This is what white people think about us. Let's see. In Red's apartment, there are about 10 people. Half of the women wear African dress and natural hair. In all my previous years in the country, I had never seen a black American woman without a wig. I had loved black women. That phrase right there scares me to death. I commence trembling anytime I hear anybody say, oh, man, I just love me some black people. I just love me some black men. I just love me some black women. Like, run fast. <laughs> like, uh, man, anybody uh, who is saying that in any time period, I wouldn't care. Like, me, non-white person or a white person, um, I had loved black women without knowing that those beautiful soft tresses were imported from Asia via Hong Kong. I loved women enough to find this modish, bushy wilderness. Uh, other folks have commented on that one as well. Let's see. And now, I thought this one was super important because I talked about Quintel Pro from before, and I said, Romain Gary, he's fought in wars. You traveled all over the world. You have an actress who is super popular. So you're a powerful white man. You know things. You know about Cointel Pro. He writes, this is Romain Gary talking to his friend Red. He says, uh, tactics. He's, this is him talking about the absurdity of the new Republic of the Black Liberation Army thing. This is nursing a dream at the expense of today's reality. It's harmless. Do I need to point out that Ron Karinga is getting less trouble, to say the least, from the FBI than the Black Panthers who don't talk about carving a black state for the blacks out of America? Stop right there. I thought white people were ignorant about racism. Romaine Gary, who has bragged about being a Frenchman the whole time, he's not even born in France. Liars. He was born in what was then the Russian Empire. You're not even a Frenchman. Get out of here. Uh, but you are not even born in this part of the world, but you know enough to know that Ron Karinga, this nigger, is getting less attention from the FBI Cointelpro Pro folks than the Black Panther Party. Wow. Fascinating. You're not ignorant about racism, white supremacy. And if you know that much about who is getting attention from the FBI, then you should have strong thoughts about Minister Malcolm's assassination, Dr. King's assassination. Why wouldn't that be the first thought? The folks who participated in the Cointelpro as opposed to it may have been a Negro. Let's see. One of Red's two twin sons, Ballard, age 22, she is 23, appropriate age, French, white, 
very white and pretty, like, wow, <laughs> like, uh, I don't even know what that means. What does that mean exactly? Very white and pretty. Like, if I even had to try to explain that to someone, I have no idea. French, white, very white, and pretty in that unpretentious, unshowy, and moving way that a girl's face sometimes achieves. No black person in the book. Even pause for a moment. Dr. King died. There's no pause and reflection on, oh, what a loss. Oh, what a great guy. What, I heard this fella and he talk about this. None of that. It's just that no count Stokely Carmichael and, man, I love me some bushy-head black women. I mean, what in the world? Like, uh, and white people being afraid because the Negroes are coming. This is a liberal, well-meaning white person, and I mean, this is, imagine that. Imagine if, if I don't know what the, the correlation would be, but if you were alive when Dr. King died, or what you would be talking about, what you would be writing about, it's not even focused on Dr. King. Like, it's not even, you know, I got to hear him say this, or I was here in D.C., the March on Washington, or blah, blah, none of that. It's just tacky comments about other black people, and all the niggas look like Malcolm X, and <laughs> Romaine Gary, white dog, incredible read. Let's see, I'll give in one more note, maybe two, and then her pale, soft skin has the kind of smooth matteness that is both light and shadow, evocative of cool fountains, Spanish patios, and Moorish veils, delicate, fragile bones, and that black, flowing, hothouse hair of the French girls in Algeria. This is him talking about uh, Madeline, uh, this white woman, this very white woman. Uh, let's see, beauty con game, Pam. Uh, I thought, oh, that was so ridiculous, the common enemy that black people have fought in every battle. Dr. Gerald Horn has written about that. That does not make you a brother. You're just a nigra. Sometimes they don't even give you a gun. They just give you a stick. That was World War II. Gary Rom- uh, Romaine Gary flew planes in World War II. They didn't allow too many black people to do that, Tuskegee Airmen, but not too many. Uh, we had the documentary filmmaker on black people that got sent to Australia. They wouldn't even give them guns, much less fly a plane. They had them out with sticks. Fight them off. Yeah, they're the, uh, the Japs. Fight them off. Here's a, here's a branch. I'll stop there. Anybody else? Any other comments before we conclude? Hello? Gus, can you hear me? Our call, let's get our obligatory time stamp. So, wow, it is almost 5 a.m., 4.56 a.m. Norway time. Yes, sir. So while the initial conversation with Keyes in the beginning of the book, you get the feeling that Keyes knows white people and can identify white racism. At this point, the author seems to be showing us that he knows black people. And uh, this phrase, a black, the blacks, it reminds me of black bodies that's being, con- that's being used now. I don't think black bodies humanizes black people more than black people. There's a strong 
demonstration of the domination of white supremacy in the conversation, in the piece about Red and his son. Red, there's a piece about Red talking about, this is my code. We're going to create um, people with military experience, and they're going to be having, making babies with black women. And then immediately afterwards, you show how the author is um, has already worked against his very dear friend in facilitating facilitating the exact opposite. His son doesn't is he facilitates his son leaving the military and being in an interracial relationship. So that's a example of deception and domination of white supremacy. I kept wondering, has his father himself been in battle? And I I'm not sure I agreed with his code that much. Um, I didn't see a lot of examples uh, in this text so far where, like you said, he's not talking about the philosophy of Martin Luther King. Um, or th- There's no detailed ex- um, description of the philosophies of um, these black people You know that would be useful for us, like a Gerald Horn's uh, work. Instead, you get, um, I get the feeling that he is, in this part of the text, he is writing for a white audience to inform them about his uh, knowledge of black people. Uh, And Red's dialogue um, made me think and reflect that, you know, it's important to have a code of counter-racism and to be continuously reevaluating it. But in general, I see, sometimes I feel like the author is two or three different people. Um, he's switching it up. Sometimes he knows black people so well, and sometimes he's so racist. He seems, he seems to know us so well and yet be so racist. So I think that's an important revelation, and it, it's not making the top ten yet, but it's really useful because it's such a good revelation of how who else do you? Who else do we know in our life that seems to know us, but might be like Romaine Gary? Thank you very much. I meet my line. Much obliged, our caller in Norway, hanging late uh, to read about racist towns. Uh, we have 30 seconds. Everybody good? Or last final quick thought? Everybody satisfied? Brotherhood is it made for the dogs. <laughs> Man. Uh, yeah, none of this makes sense. That That is, I guess, one thing that I was thinking that would be my final call. Red's thoughts. They're so illogical, and I've heard some of them before. Like I've heard, like, like I said, the thing about let's just have a whole lot of children, that just means you'll have more slaves. Mr. Fuller has talked about that because he heard that. Mr. Fuller was alive. When this was, it's, you can go see, and some of you people, black people were saying this, victims were saying this and thinking this way, and even the Vietnam thing. Like we'll go to the war and get trained, and then we'll come back, and we'll really show whitey. Like absolutely, there were some black people who thought that way, not all, not even many perhaps, but there were uh, some who had that thinking uh, and even some who uh, I've still heard different uh, kind of permutations of that way of thinking would just show caller who wrote in or investor who wrote in. Confusion is lethal, rampant. So that was one thing that I was thinking that, that this red dialogue could be accurate because it's sufficiently illogical and pretty consistent with what I've heard. So might be, might be, or at least based on some elements of truth. How about that? 
Uh, so we will resume sometime soon. Chapter 11, White Dog, Romaine Gary. Fascinating read. If you didn't hear the program from Tuesday, go back and check it out. More detail there. We'll be here tomorrow neutralizing workplace racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, remain safe as possible. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Uh, we need our brain computer working at maximum efficiency. We got racist dogs, the Rona, race soldiers, lots of obstacles in our way. In addition to being sober, we should be staying in the house. Uh, there are lots of hazards, as previously mentioned. Uh, if you don't have to be out, I would stay in. I'd be very strategic if it's not like a work thing, necessary errands, things for your offspring, that type of thing, in the house. Uh, if you go out and it looks unsafe, looks like there could be a confrontation, no skirmishes with white people. Uh, assume that they are probably armed, especially if they are escalating. If they look like they want to get rowdy and are yelling and it's no, you know, try to exit and just get out of here. Like, no, they want a conference. Get out of there immediately. It's no discussion. If you need to call the enforcement officials, do that as you are exiting. Uh, but it is super dangerous if it even looks like it's headed in that direction. I would recommend the whole outing is done. We'll try this again at a safe time. Uh, but if you've got to go out, you are sober. You are buckled. Uh, if you are driving, you are not on the phone, uh, multiple reasons. One, uh, all of our attention, armed race soldiers, lots of problems. Second, we are trying to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no, every little bit helps. That's it. Uh, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy, we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. No name-calling. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim no brother problem. you're a victim yeah. i'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning mm -hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned <laughs> lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.